You're listening to Review and Preview on Facebook Live. You're listening. Oh, hello, everybody. Uh, we're all good there. Uh, good evening. Welcome <laughs> to Review and Preview. I'm your host, Tom Scavetta. Join alongside Kyle Russo and James Montefusco. Thank you both very much for joining me here tonight. I'm really looking forward to this show. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, before we move any further, just remember to check out check check us out on our ticker below. Subscribe to our podcast on Instagram at uh or follow us on instagram at review and preview there on facebook and on the anchor make sure to go check us out the audio version and then subscribe to our youtube channel at review and preview sports we re really appreciate it give us a thumbs up smash the like button uh and then our special guest tonight is chris milholland he is a brooklyn nets reporter for uh nets daily he'll be joining the show at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. So without further ado, Kyle and James, first off, I just wanted to uh, thank you both again for joining tonight. And the New York Mets have a new general manager. His name is Jared Porter, assistant Diamondbacks GM. Um, that's what he was before this position, and he takes over over the weekend. He is 41 years old, and he won a World Series title with – on their multiple organizations, including the Boston Red Sox and the Chicago Cubs before joining the Diamondbacks. Uh, Kyle and James, first off, James, I'll start with you as a Mets fan. What were your thoughts about this? No more Brody. J uh, Jared Porter is the new sheriff in town. Um, it's nice to see because Brody didn't really do much. I feel like Brody really just wanted to help his clients, in a sense, um, get them the biggest deal he can, bring them to the Mets, kind of evolved the team around his clients, which we sort of wasn't helping us at all, wasn't helping his case as GM. Uh, when a new owner comes in, I expected him to clean house, which I'm glad he did. It's nice to see Andy, Sandy Alderson back. Um, with the new GM they have now, I think will work perfectly uh, because he was in the Red Sox organization. So he's kind of familiar with the New York area because they did play the Yankees. Um, and then also he was with um, the Cubs, a, a team we've also faced, we also play. Um, so he at least has some knowledge of the Mets. Um, I'm looking forward to what he has to bring as a GM to us. I'm looking forward how him and Alderson will work. I also look forward to him and Luis Rojas working together as well. Um, since Luis Rojas will be going into his second year of management, uh, for the Mets, it. I'm looking to see how all these key pieces come together. Um, so you know what it, it. It's better than what we had. I'm looking forward to it. Obviously, Tom, you can probably agree with me um, that we won't see a huge impact right away, um, but we will see some type of impact within the first year of Steve Cohen and the new management around. Yeah, and before we get to Kyle, I know Met fans are not going to like me saying this, but we're not making the playoffs this year. 
It, it's not going to happen. This team's playing for the future. I understand Steve Cohen is making moves, this and that, but let's be a little realistic. I think this is a good move to set us up for success in about one to two years from now. Do I think there's hope this year? Of course, there's always hope, but I think when you look at this team on paper, there's still holes to fill. Noah Syndergaard's reco- recovering from Tommy John. We're more than likely not going to have him. Marcus Stroman is coming back from injury. So we have a lot of holes on this team. Kyle, what's your makeup of Jared Porter and his current resume? It seems like a pretty impressive move, young guy, to bring into this organization. Yeah, having a guy like that who's with the Red Sox, who's been one of the best organizations since the year 2000. They have, uh, what is it, three World Series uh, since the year 2000. Uh, and then being with the Diamondbacks. The Diamondbacks the last couple of years have been a thing that's made some noise for agency, whether it was – Free agency are making trade itself, bringing in a guy like Zach Greinke a couple of years back, uh, bringing in a guy like Paul Goldschmidt, trading for him originally, um, and also bringing in Madison Bumgarner, who, yes, is kind of at the turmoil and end of his career, but still bringing in a guy and attracting, at the time, one of the biggest free agents pitchers on the market. And hopefully that can come forth with the Mets and now his new role is the GM of that team as well, especially in a free agency class where – I don't really know. I don't really understand why nothing has happened yet. It's probably due to the fact that teams don't know their payroll yet. But right. with so many, so many great free agents left on this market, you know, a guy that's brought in some of those great names that baseball has, it, it should be a bright spot for this Mets team. I would happen to agree, and I, I think they're making good moves so far. They brought in veteran catcher James McCann over the mm-hmm. weekend, a four-year deal. For forty million from the, he played recently for the Chicago White Sox. I think this is a great move, replacing Wilson Ramos, pretty much the all-around uh, catcher um, that you would want, not just the bat. So I think that's a good acquisition. I want to get uh, both of your thoughts on that as well. But Salvatore for Micah says hard to say they are not making the playoffs until you see the final team, Ed Springer or Lindor, along with another starter and one more lights-out guy in the bullpen, and we make the playoffs. Salvatore. Uh, I know Kyle wants to make a comment. I just want to say I completely agree with what you're saying, but I've been a Mets fan my whole life. I've seen this team top to bottom. It's hard to be optimistic, man. Uh, I just think we don't have those pieces yet. So right now I'm going to go ahead and say no, and until we have a proven track record of bringing in Band-Aids. So until Steve Cohen has proven to us that he can change that, it's kind of like an innocent until proven guilty type of thing, except it's reverse with the Mets. So that's why I'm kind of having this – stance here Kyle I I mean I think that they are capable more than capable of being a playoff team I think that what's scary for this Mets team going in now has got to be their rotation and their rotation is something that's been solid the last couple of years but why I think it could be a big issue come this year is because look at this rotation right now you know what you're getting in Jacob deGrom but the rest of the lineup on the offensive side of the ball for the Mets never shows up when he starts we know that that's that's a proven fact then you have Syndergaard, who's not going to be healthy. What are you going to get with Marcus Stroman, who's taken a year off from baseball? And even when he played for the Mets for the half a season after coming over from the Toronto Blue Jays, what exactly was he? He didn't have that you know, pinpoint spectacular game like he had in Toronto for so many years prior. Then you have David Peterson, who came up. He was a, he was a nice pitcher for you guys, but can he be that starting fourth or fifth guy? Steven Matz, Steven Matz was absolutely horrible last year. He was hard. There's there's no other word to describe it. That's the pitching rotation for me is what's scary because I think the bats are there. Everybody you can't really judge the bats that much based off of last year because they didn't have a proper spring training. They didn't they didn't have that. 
That's why Pete Alonso, it took him almost 30 plus games to get acclimated back to that level in which he played like in his first season. J.D. Davis didn't play like that. Jeff McNeil, although he set the bar high with that first season, uh, last season back with the Mets, he didn't have that same type of play this year. I think that if you give them the proper spring training, which we'll see, because now it's, there's word that baseball will be delayed to start potentially till May, right. you know, we'll see what unfolds. But I do believe that they also are missing some pieces, as Sal was alluding to, that could solidify that hole, no doubt. Don't get me wrong, Sal. I, I definitely do agree. I, I see where you're coming from. The problem with me is, what, what was there, eight teams in the playoffs last year? And everybody was like, oh, the Mets are going to get in. There's eight teams. And look what happened, guys. They, the team yeah. that can finish over 500. I mean, you can't really predict injuries and the whole COVID thing. I understand it's very difficult, but I just think we're in a very tough riddle division with the Atlanta Braves, with the Florida, the Florida Marlins now, the Miami Marlins, I should say, um, talking we're, like we're in 2012 there. And then um, the Philadelphia Phillies are no pushover either. And, you know, Washington, yes, they're rebuilding. They lost Adam Eaton, but they're a team you have to look out for as well. I want to be optimistic. Maybe um, there's a chance that the Mets could definitely finish over 500 this year. I, I do think that that's certainly an option, but – um, to say that this team uh, is probably in it for this year, I think it's going to be left to be seen what happens over the first couple months of the season, James. I feel like the Mets are a really good first-half team historically, and then in the second half is where things start to uh, downfall just a little bit. So I think if we can bolster our rotation and have them healthy throughout the full season – then I think we could have this playoffs discussion. But right now, the last few seasons, this rotation has never been fully healthy throughout the whole season where it's been Jake, Jake, and Jake. Yeah, and that that's a problem because DuGram, you can't rely on him. He's the backbone. He's the workhorse of our pitching staff, which is great, phenomenal. But there's going to be games and there's going to be times where he's just not – going to have it or he's just going to look flat out like exhausted because he has to do everything literally yep. score a run and pitch and win so those three things he has to do forget about it i i don't they i don't want to say they, they they may not make the playoffs this season i don't want to say right. they will make the playoffs this season i want to say that as long as they get comfortably above 500, not two games, not five games, I want to see 10 or 15 right. games mm-hmm. above 500. It's an improvement. And also we have to see what division, what our division is like, you know, right. with Washington, with the Braves. Are they going to come out flat? I also would like to see them add another arm to our rotation because Russo did say Pete mm-hmm. Alonzo, uh, not Pete. Uh, no, I don't know why I said Pete Alonzo. Um, David Peterson. David Peterson was good to bring him up, but also Steven Matz. Right. He, they, like, you just got to cut him, man. Like, I'm sorry. He's a Long Island guy, Long Island native. Don't want him. I'm Don't sorry, care. but I, he, he, he's absolutely nothing to me, but then somebody to fill a hole to throw a ball. Pete Alonso, like what Russo was saying, it took him a while to heat up. That's because they had spring training, and then the whole world was like, nope, everything's on hold until God knows when. And we're still almost in that – we're still somewhat in that stage. If Pete Alonso can get back on track to where he was, not saying he's going to hit 60-plus home runs. Right. Um, but 
back on track, that will help the team along yeah. with Jeff McNeil. If he can get back on track. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cause Pete was bad so, for a while. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, then even uh, Diaz, and then even real quick, Edwin Diaz too. The, the first half of the season, he was horrible. And then the second half, he was absolutely amazing. The amount of games that he blew for you guys in the first half of the season alone, you know, it was incredible. Uh-huh. Well, when you, when we got the, when we signed, I forget who we signed, just May, I think. Trevor, uh, May. Trevor May, a few weeks. Um, now it's probably going to be a month back. That was very helpful for our, uh, Pitching staff for our bullpen right. out because it solidified almost that eighth and ninth inning guy. You have to keep building it. That's the key to success yep. too. And we'll talk about the Mets, folks, as we get later, um, as we get closer to the season. I just want to remind you all: Brooklyn Nets reporter Chris Milholland will be joining us in just a couple of moments to preview the team and talk about some Kevin Durant, Kyrie stuff, James Harden rumors. But before we get there, let's just introduce our NBA segment. Uh, the NBA will play a seventy-two regular season a 72-game regular season, and this just in today, the Milwaukee Bucks uh, back-to-back MVP in 2018 and 2019. Giannis Antetokounmpo signs the Supermax contract extension, five years, $228 million, and that is now the biggest contract in NBA history. Kyle, um, I know there were hopes and dreams about him coming to South Beach, but he is staying <laughs> up north, and I'm very happy about that. I mean, again, and I'm not looking to be negative here whatsoever, but again, uh, he would be absolutely uh, stupid to to leave that kind of money on the table because if he did not sign the max, he'd be leaving potentially $50, 60000000 million on the table. What it does now is, again, we'll see where Milwaukee is, you know, two or three years down the line in this contract. And if he stays there, the tenure of that contract, right? The team is aging the starting lineup. We'll see. But again, if you're a Milwaukee Bucks fan, this is a good day because Again, for this guy to kind of really, really push it to the last minute where it started to question whether or not he was going to actually sign or not. Right. Um, it's, a, it's a good day if you're a Bucs fan. I think, too, the biggest concern with the Bucs right now is, and it's not it's not even the bench, it's what type of production you're going to get out of Chris Middleton this year. And I don't mean to go on a rant about the Bucs, but uh, before we get to Chris about Brooklyn, I think that Chris Middleton is the biggest issue on this team right now. I'm not – so worried about Drew Holiday. Chris Middleton needs to score 20 to 25, like night in and not, not every single game, but you want to have at least 20 points from that man. As yeah. where you look at Miami, a team that had a consistent, reliable duo and Jimmy Butler and Bam at a bio, right? Uh, mm-hmm. The Boston Celtics kind of had it with Kemba Tatum and even Brown a little bit. And that's why those two teams advanced as far as they did in the playoffs last year. And Milwaukee did it. It wasn't just because the bench was poor in the playoffs. It's because of Chris Middleton. We have to figure out what we have in him because the Bucs are now in rumors for potentially acquiring James Harden, which if the Bucs get James Harden, um, it would be very difficult to not at least put them in the Eastern Conference Finals. What would they even give up for that? Because they don't I'm have assuming, I'm they assuming. Don't I'm assuming Middleton – DiVincenzo, I mean, it, it all depends. I personally don't want to make that move for James Harden if I'm Milwaukee. I wouldn't. Uh, just because. But I think there are pieces in place right now where you could look at teams like the Nets, the Celtics, the Bucks, the Heat, and say like, and even, you know, I don't want to downplay Toronto just yet, but I know they lost a lot of veterans 
But, um, you know, it'll definitely be interesting to see how that unfolds. And at this time, uh, we are going to bring up our guest for the evening, Brooklyn Nets reporter, Chris Milholland. Chris, thank you very much for joining the show, and we really appreciate it. How you guys doing? Good. How you doing, man? Good. Doing good, man. Just another day, you know? That's about it. Gotcha. <laughs> Love the background, by the way. Um, can, thank can you. you thank just, you. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do for the Brooklyn Nets for the folks watching and listening? Sure. So I'm a writer reporter for SB Nation's Nets Daily covering the Brooklyn Nets. So last year I covered the Nets G League affiliate, the Long Island Nets. So I went out to Uniondale in the Nassau Coliseum, covered their G League team for the whole year. So I had home games, also covered them on the beat, right? So and then this year, uh, it, with last year as well, I mixed in some Nets coverage as well. So won a couple wrote a couple articles on them, covered them. And then this year, totally on the beat, covering the Brooklyn Nets. So that's what I'm doing. Awesome stuff. Uh, Thanks. Keep up the great work. I know I just uh, followed you on, I believe, Twitter the other day. So definitely uh, like watching your stuff. But, um, yeah, it's, it's been crazy. Brooklyn, it's going to be a fun year. First time Kyrie and Kevin Durant playing together. So it should definitely be a lot of fun. But, uh, Kyle, why don't we get started here? Yeah, so Chris, my first question, obviously this is a, a, something that's been around for the past two, three weeks now. It, it, it gained some traction in the beginning, and a lot of people thought it was going to eventually go through, but then it came to an ultimate halt. And what I'm talking about is James Harden potentially to the Nets. At this point in time, is there anything in regards to that potentially even happening at this point in time? Uh, well, the Nets have leverage. That's, that's the main thing, right? So you see with Houston, they want a massive haul, including a – now all-star so that in that terms when you talk about with the nets they're looking at kevin durant kyrie irving which the nets have no interest in trading for whatsoever so if they want to i guess you could say backpedal a little bit and work on those type of options other than katie and kyrie i think a look at guys such as karis levert you know he's a rising star i uh, really showed out in the bubble when the nets were shorthanded so he was their main guy we saw what he could do on the ball that's kind of like the main thing and then this year he's off the ball so that's gonna be interesting to see but that's another topic but if, if, if you're the Nets, Sean Marks has been kind of really expressing and emphasizing this, the whole training camp throughout the whole thing is mostly, hey, we're happy with our group. And same thing with Steve Nash. They like the versatility. The Nets are one of the most deepest teams in the league at all five positions. And they're really leaning towards positionless basketball. So I think the Nets are very happy with where they are currently. But, hey, you know, it's the Nets. It is James Harden at the end of the day. Not a lot of guys like James Harden are available on trade markets here and there. So it's going to all develop. So, But personally, I do not think the Nets are going to trade for him. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. But the Nets have made some moves this offseason. Obviously, they brought back Joe Harris. They re-signed him to a four-year deal. They acquired Bruce Brown and Landry Shamit in trades, and then they signed Jeff Green. Uh, which one of these offseason moves do you think, Chris, was the most important for this Brooklyn team? When, I, when you look at the offseason uh, off acquisitions, I would have to say Landry Shaman by far. He's one of those guys that are one of those instant impact guys. So when the Nets got him, uh, in the beginning, I thought of it as Joe, Joe Harris insurance, right? So Joe Harris was a free agent at that time. The likelihood was he was going to resign, which he did. The Net, Sean Marsh expressed that was his number one priority heading into the offseason was bringing back Joe. Um, and he explained it when he resigned that, hey, he, was, he exemplifies what it means to be a Brooklyn Net. He fits all the boxes. He's been there from 2016 when they, hey, during the 20 wins, 40 wins, 40, 44 wins, and now with championship aspirations, right? So Landry Shamit sticks out to me. 
I do like Bruce Brown. I do like him a lot, especially on the defensive end of the ball. So he's one of those guards that really bring on that impact on the defensive end. And if you look on the other side, one guy I'm very fond of is Reggie Perry, who they acquired in the draft. So they got him. He When he talked, he said, hey, I knew I was going to Brooklyn at the 55th pick. Uh, obviously, he was traded for. They kind of traded up one spot to get him. Sean Mark said, hey, he was higher on our board than how he was um, viewed as. Obviously, you see he fell all the way to one of the final picks in the second round. And a couple days ago in the scrimmage, um, Steve Nash put him in. He put him in to get some runs in with the starters. He put him in to get some runs with the, the bench on the end as well. And by what everyone's been saying, what Steve Nash has been saying as well, that they're very high on this kid. He's 20 years old. He's physically there. He has an NBA-ready body. He gives that um, kind of a different – style of game to that five position. If you look at the next five, you have DeAndre George, Jared Allen. And there are two guys that haven't really shot the ball or have not really excelled in that aspect. But you look at Reggie Perry, it's more of a modern five. You could stretch the floor. You could shoot the three ball. And you get to really stretch out the floor. That's the main thing with the Nets need. Because they got KD, Kyrie, and Joe Harris. And you know, and a lot of other shooters around them. So I, if I had to say Reggie Perry is my choice. But if you're just talking about offseason acquisitions, I would have to go with Landry Shamit. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, we actually do have a question from one of the viewers. Yep, James, you can pin that. Uh, Rodion Kuroks improved in the bubble, but do you see but do you see him less all right, do you see him getting less time on the floor? Or well it's actually it's actually interesting that question popped up because today in the media session with Steve Nash, he viewed Rodion Kuroks as a development mode player, which mostly means hey, you know, he's at the same time he's twenty two years old. A lot of people forget that because he's been in the league, I guess, a couple of years, you know. And do I see him getting less time on the floor than last year? You know, he really bursted out in his rookie year. That's really when he caught a lot of guys' eyes in the rookie year. He was one of those guys that, oh, wow, is he a second-round steal? Did Sean Marks do it again? You know, one of those type of players. And then the previous season, he kind of dipped a little bit. The production wasn't quite there. Obviously, he had a couple off-the-court issues that he was also dealing with at that time, which are still ongoing to today. But do I see less him less on the floor? Most definitely, I think that – with the Nets are such a deep team and you saw him, he was one of the two players that just did not play in the first preseason scrimmage, him and Bruce Brown. And that's because you look at his position, right? He's a four. He could be, he could be a three, but the Nets four and threes positions, even in the five, that whole front court is loaded. And with Steve Nash said, Hey, we got to work on the rotations, especially with the front court. And at the same time, do I supposedly put the, the bottle cap on that question? I would say, we should see less time in from him, but I expect them to see some time in the G League. But you guys probably know the G League, they're looking at a bubble. The Nets are reportedly one of those teams that opted into the bubble. So, um, but I'm going to, I'm excited to see what Rodgers can do this year. He's on a very team friendly contract, and um, put it that way. And I'm just excited to see what he could do. Now, Chris, my next question for you is in regards to obviously the coaching staff. And this past September, the Nets hired Steve Nash to a four-year deal to become the head coach. And he hired some familiar faces back from his days in Phoenix uh, with Amari Stoudemire as the player developmental uh, assistant and then uh, Mike D'Antoni as well. Um, and also hired Greg Popovich's assistant on his staff, uh, Emi Adoku, who, who potentially could have gotten a head coaching job himself uh, just being under the presence of Greg Popovich his last uh, – I believe it was five or six seasons. So what do you make so far of this coaching staff? What are your what are your thoughts? Well, I think that's the best coaching staff to have for a rookie head coach, especially for Steve Nash, because that's been the main thing that Steve Nash acknowledged. The one thing about Steve Nash is 
he's humble and he he's acknowledgeable about the situation that he's currently in. He understands, hey, he's a two-time MVP, one of the most generational talents at the point guard position we've ever seen out of the NBA hardwood. But at the same time, you know, coaching is completely different. And we've seen it over the years how stars, once they get into the head coaching job, it doesn't really turn out that well. And with Steve Nash, he, he acknowledged that, hey, I'm still learning my position. So in the beginning, when the coaching staff was finalized and his introductionary presser, he even said, hey, Mike D'Antoni's going to hand, handle the offensive end. Shaq Vaughn, who's the Nets lead assistant, who they really paid high money for because he did a great job in the bubble. They knew that he was probably going to get a head coaching job somewhere, which he, hey, he's highly deserving of. And I highly believe he will get one, if not next season or next offseason. But with Steve, he's this is this is the type of staff he wants around him. You see, Mike, Dan, Mike D'Antoni, for example, is – I can throw out this stat for you guys. Jeff Green, when he was in Houston – had the best offsets, offs, uh, offensive productive season he's had in his whole entire career. And this guy's 34 years old. And now he's on the Nets. And with the Nets, they're looking towards, like I mentioned before, positionless basketball. And with with the Nets coaching staff, yeah, Emeka Udoka, he, like you said, he got his name was widely reported in a lot of head coaching vacancies. And I think he's going to do a great job as well. The guy's very knowledgeable on the defensive end. We saw little slip-ups in Philly with some defensive rotations and how they've managed to do a lot of switching. That's kind of his biggest knock. But at the same time, you got to look at it as this. It's Steve Nash. He's a rookie head coach. you got Mike D'Antoni, Emeka Udoka, Jack Vaughn, Adam Harrington. you got Tiago Splitter's player development. And the list just goes down like a waterfall. These guys are all experienced. And like you said, that common niche is, hey, they, they do have that Spurs relationship all the way up from Sean Marks down as well. So in this situation for Steve Nash, I wouldn't even name a better coaching staff in the NBA for a rookie head coach to get implemented in right away for. I agree. I definitely like the coaching staff a lot, Chris. Uh, hopefully they gel together well. And speaking of gelling, we have to talk about kind of the one-two punch. Well, not kind of, but the one-two punch of this team, yeah. Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. How have they looked in preseason so far, and what are your expectations specifically for the two of them heading into the season? My, my biggest takeaway from the first preseason game is, hey, they look like Kyrie and Kevin Durant. That, that, that's literally my biggest takeaway from that, right? You saw Steve Nash before the game. He said, hey, they're going to play anywhere from 20 to 25 minutes. Obviously, you know, Kevin Durant's coming back from – he came back from 550-day absence heading into that game. And then Kyrie Irving didn't play for a very long time. He played 20 games last year, and he was also – coming back from a shoulder injury so you got to look at it this way right it's my biggest takeaway from that is it's mostly it's a dynamic duo I know Kyrie has with the media and off-court distractions as well but he said hey the biggest thing that I could tell you guys is he's focusing on winning a championship with this team and really gelling and meshing and one thing that Steve Nash also really emphasized with throughout training camp and media week was, hey, sacrifice. This team is going to need sacrifice. And by sacrifice, which I mean is a lot of players that were on the Nets last year, so you look at guys like Karis LeVert, Joe Harris, uh, Spencer Dinwiddie, those guys, hey, you could put them on it. They're probably great starters on any other team or certain teams in the NBA. But on this Nets team, they know who the two offensive guys are on the floor with the balls in their hands, and that's Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. And just today, Karis LeVert even said, hey, I'm willing to come off the bench. And he said, hey, I could play on the ball. Because if he is coming off the bench, he's going to be leader of the second unit. He's going to be on the ball. If he's a starter, he's going to come off the ball. And and get back to your idea of gelling, right? With Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving on the floor, a lot of the opposing team players are going to keep their eyes close on them because they know what they could do. 
And that leaves a lot of comfort for guys such as Joe Harris and other shooters, Landry Sherman, like I mentioned earlier, to really space the floor, Jeff Green, stretch five. And like I mentioned before as well with positionless basketball, Steve Nash is going to do his best to really spread this floor. And you're going to see a lot of different type of play styles out of this team that we're not used to seeing anywhere in the NBA, I think, this whole year. And on top of that, you got to look at this, is the secondary scoring and the secondary defense is – uh, it's not getting a lot of coverage, but it's got to – they're going to be special too because you look at guys, just the depth of this team, they could score the ball and around the aspects. And then just getting back, touching a little bit on the defensive end with Katie and Kyrie as well, is Steve Nash is implementing this new defensive style that's – he said that a lot of guys are still learning, which is mostly scary because not a lot of teams won't be able to know how to cover that. And Steve Nash said, hey, I'm not afraid of my guys to switch. There's going to be a lot of switching. Kind of that was the big key hint he threw in there. So that kind of goes back to that positionless basketball. But overall, when it comes to meshing, it's going to take these guys some time, uh, especially, you know, this Nets team. They're in championship expectations. They have championship aspirations. All these guys are locked in. They know what the main goal is. They acknowledge the sacrifice. And just overall, it's just going to come down to how Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving really play. And on top of that, how those pieces around them complement them. Yeah, no, there's a lot of complimentary pieces to this team, which I, I like for sure. And one of our fans just brought up a good point, how you touched upon the secondary scoring, how that's going to be scary good, as Sal just mentioned. And mm-hmm. um, I know you kind of answer, answered our question about Spencer Dinwiddie, um, a guy who scored over 20 points a game last year, how he's probably going to be in the backcourt with Kyrie, I would assume. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that should be fun to watch. And then Karras coming off the bench. But – um, one guy that I want to discuss is Jarrett Allen. Uh, what have you seen in his growth and development, learning from veterans like DeAndre Jordan in the front court? The thing with Jarrett Allen is he's constantly progressing. I think the one thing that he's that we can all really agree on is he needs a jump shot. And in the preseason game, even though they didn't count, we all caught it. The whole media caught it was at every dead ball, he really shot the ball. He shot a three, he made that, and he shot a mid-range, and he made that. So, hey – if he could bring out those type of tools in his arsenal, especially for this year, and as I've expressed the whole time, they're trying to play positionless and spread the floor. And that's what they need Jarrett to do. Because as I mentioned before as well, Reggie Perry is one of those guys that, hey, although he's 20 years old, he get he's confident in shooting the ball. And Steve Nash knows that and he acknowledges that as well. But with Steve Nash, what he said today, I can give you guys this. He mostly said he kind of gave the indication that he was looking to start DeAndre Jordan, have Jared Allen come off the bench, which was as expected the whole time. Because, you know, they mesh well. KD Kyrie, DeAndre Jordan. DeAndre Jordan is bringing that veteran leadership. He started a lot of games throughout his whole career before he even came to the Nets. I think he only started three games throughout his whole career before uh, – or did not start three games before he joined the Nets. So that really shows the type of experience he brings. But on top of that, to get back to your point with the development of Jared Allen, I think the addition of Amari Stoudemire as a player development really benefits Jared Allen because Jared Allen, he's known, he's not afraid to jump up and block shots and be a rim protector. He's not afraid to really get up there and get rebounds, although he may look like someone that, hey, he could get a little beat up down low on the post by big men such as Joel Embiid, which we have seen over the years, especially dating back to the Nets' first-round loss when in the D'Angelo Russell era against the Sixers. But Jarrett, it's just going to come down to let, let's see how he does, right? He's he's young. A lot of people, and I know the Nets have really taken their time with developing young talent over the years. They're not rushed. It's not like Jarrett, if he doesn't 
really take that big leap this year? Is he going to be on the trade market? We don't know that, especially with all the rumors going around with James Harden and however things could transpire in the years to come or even this, the next months to come. But with Jared Allen, it's going to be interesting how he develops. I'm I'm most willing to see what he does on the defensive end more than the offensive end. Like I mentioned before, he's a rim protector. He's he's done great on pick and rolls and switching and on the defensive end as well. So that's what that's my thoughts on him. And Chris, you talked about a guy earlier in Reggie Perry, who the Knicks, uh, who the Nets brought in as well. Average seventeen and ten uh, as a sophomore at Mississippi State, uh, but now I've called him a modern five at six and ten. Do you agree with this statement? I would kind of, uh, you know, like when I was looking over tape of Reggie as well, he, he, I just got to go with Steve Nash's words because he sees him in training camp. He's the one that's coaching him and everything. He, I did actually cover him because when I was when I was in college, I was a uh, Naismith social media intern, and uh, that's like the college MVP, and he was very high on our watch list. So as a social media intern, you guys know, you guys tweet out highlights and everything like that, and I got to watch him a lot. And I saw a good three balls, although – Hey, he didn't attempt that many a game. He didn't do anything. But the biggest thing is that he could really stretch the floor. Because when you get when you think of the five position from Jared, DJ, Reggie, Nick Claxton's another name to keep in there as well. The thing is, we know who the two main scorers are going to be. It's going to be Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. And as long as they have the space, they're not going to want a traditional big man. Because Steve Nash has not brought up the word traditional in any type of five, this whole type of so far on coverage heading into the first uh, regular season game. So with Reggie, you can make that point that, hey, he's not quite the modern five, but, hey, you know, he's a 20-year-old kid. He just entered the league. He came from he came from Mississippi, and uh, his name kind of hit under the radar from a lot of guys, especially on draft boards. Uh, Sean Marks had him high, and we know what Sean Marks could do in the draft. He's pulled a couple people. So um, I'm excited to see what he does. So – Kind of going off of that, Brooklyn opens up against Golden State a week from tonight. Uh, a team that has lost Clay, Clay Thompson for the year and won't have their rookie big man, James Wiseman. Mm-hmm. What type of performance do you expect out of Kevin Durant against his old old team um, with Steph Curry still on it? You know, Steph Curry might be wanting to revitalize that team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. So the thing is with with KD is Nash is very cautious about how much he's going to play him, which I don't blame him. He he strictly said, hey, 20, 25 minutes, that's what he's going to do. KD acknowledges that as well. Uh, I wrote a story up a couple days ago as well. I think it was two days ago. Uh, after the preseason game, Kevin Durant even said, I don't, I want to play elite level basketball towards the postseason and in playoffs. So that just shows that he's willing to adjust. He's not going to be one of the – he knows that he's not going to go out there and try to put up those big numbers and give off that indication that, hey, Kevin Durant is back. Kevin Durant is – he's back to where he was, right? He came back from the Achilles injury. He knows he could take his time. And with with this as well, like I've stressed already, is that the Nets have other scoring options from the starters to the bench. So there's not really a concern or a type of responsibility for Kevin Durant to put up those big numbers. What do I expect out of him? Um, Well, they got one more preseason game against Boston. I I expect that Kevin Durant do hit the 20-minute marker. He played, I think, 17 minutes last time uh, in the Wizards preseason game. But I think when when it comes down to against the Warriors, I think he's really going to show out. I think we're going to really see great mobility out of him. That's the biggest thing that I'm looking forward to seeing. We saw a little bit in the preseason game against the Wizards that he was able to move with the ball in his hands. He didn't really favor – 
the biggest thing I, I even said um, was the biggest play that he did in that preseason game was take that hard charge by Rui Hachimura because that shows that he's not afraid. To, he's not fearing away from contact. He's not shying away from that aspect of the game, which mostly means that, hey, he's got confidance in that leg. So when it, like to answer your question, what I could see out of the Warriors, mm-hmm. I could or him against the Warriors, I could see him putting up 15-plus points. But overall, I think the biggest takeaway I want to see about the, out of the Nets is on the def- defensive end and how they really gel on the offensive end. Because Steve Nash said, hey, this isn't going to be one of those years where, hey, we go in and we're going to really start off the year like 10-0, 20-0, whatever the case is, like Eric, mm-hmm. give off super team vibes, I guess you could say, right? He knows that, hey, there was a shortened training camp, shortened offseason. A lot of these guys just came in really right before training camp began or really got back into the shape of things and conditioning-wise. So he knows that there's going to be little humps and little humps and hills to kind of hop over as that time goes on. So uh, with Kevin Durant in his season in his uh, season debut with the Nets, I would have to say 15 plus. Uh, I'm excited to see his mobility, like I said, and just really see how he just overall plays. I agree. I can't wait to watch them opening night against Golden State. That should be a lot of fun. One player we didn't mention is Torian Prince, one yes. of our watchers. Uh, wants to know about Prince. It looks like his three-pointer has improved, and he looks a lot more confident. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Torian looks a lot more confident. And the thing that he's been stressing throughout this training camp is that, hey, I am locked in. Because Torian last year, I want to say he met expectations completely, right, coming from Atlanta. He wasn't that guy that really packed that punch that Nets fans and the Nets really expected. But this season he knows that, hey, this is a loaded team. And, you know, with championship teams, they always have their eyes on making moves. So Torian knows, hey, there's a lot of depth at my position. I'm going to have to really show out and perform, and he knows that. And um, overall, I, I like like your your viewer commented, his three-point shot really looked good in the preseason. And from training camp, when we asked about – I forgot which player it was. We asked, has any player really caught your eye or surprised you? Because you always want to ask those little questions because you never know. The guys can add up, say, two players say the same player, then you follow up with that player. But – one of the guys mentioned Torian Prince, his aggressiveness. He's really worked on his body over the offseason. He could tell – you could tell he's been one of those guys that really took this offseason and really worked out. He wasn't one of those guys that, okay, like I'm going to take it slow and everything. And obviously you guys know with all these unknown times that we're living in with the global pandemic, it's very hard for a lot of guys to get in the gym and pick up the basketball, which he explained. But I was very impressed with his preseason debut. Chris, last year Brooklyn had made the playoffs, finishing off 35 and 37, entering the bubble. But obviously when half your team was diagnosed with COVID going into the bubble and then had to get some starters up from the G League just to fill out the roster, uh, they wound up losing to the Raptors. Uh, But a lot of people going into this year, including Steve Nash, are already talking NBA championship. What do you think the team's feeling or expectations should be heading into year one together? What I personally think is I don't think they're going to win a championship this year. I'll get that out of the way. Um, I've I've said it numerous amounts of occasions. I don't really feel like changing it because I just don't think it's going to happen. I think realistically what we could be looking at is uh, Eastern Conference Finals, whatever they like. I would say somewhere in that aspect. I understand. Listen, it's a preseason game. I saw it all on Twitter when I was when I was watching the game as well. Right? It's everyone. Kevin Durant makes a dunk. Kyrie Irving, they drop huge numbers in the first, and everyone's already throwing out locks for championships. 
I can tell you right now it's going to take a lot for this team to really mesh in the beginning and really start off on a strong foot, like I mentioned earlier. It's going to take time. It's been a short training camp. With COVID going on, a lot of these players haven't worked out. But getting back to the championship point, I would just have to say overall what this team is – it's never, it's never hard, it's never wrong to put the bar too high up for any NBA team, right? Is because with these guys, the one I'm telling you, the three words that you have heard throughout training camp is being locked in, buying in, and being competitive, and that's what every one of this team has really acknowledged. And sacrifice comes with that, like I mentioned that, and all if they could really implement those three or those four terms and carry that throughout the rest of the season. Hey, then we can maybe start talking championships. But hey, guys, it's it's the preseason season to even start yet. And at the end of the day, listen, this is going to be a, this is a championship contender. I highly doubt they're going to win the first year, but hey, they could prove me wrong. But um, at the same time, listen, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna doubt anyone named Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving to lead a team. To. <laughs> mm-hmm. So speaking to championships, in a sense, uh, what's your thoughts on the Atlantic Division? Overall, hey, it's a competitive division, right? You look at down, up and down, right? You got Philly, Boston, Toronto, Nets. There, those are playoff teams, right there. Boston's Boston made. I like the moves that Boston made this offseason. I do like that Tristan Thompson uh, addition. I do like that. I know a lot of people didn't, but I do like Tristan Thompson. I do like that. You got Jalen Brown. You got Jason Tatum over there. Obviously, Toronto. They're kind of in that. Are they contenders? Are they not? I don't think they are. But hey, you know, Masai. He's a great GM. I really like what he did with the organic growth of this team, bringing up guys from the G League, developing them down there, and then implementing them into the roster. You guys look at Fred Van Vliet, Siakam, Bruchet, the list goes on. That's organic building. That's what the Nets really focused on, too. And you could show that really shows in this league that if you build a foundation ground up, you're going to get places. But you look at this, this division, right? Two teams are in the hardened rumors with the Nets and Philly. Philly's now getting a little more coverage when it comes to that, but I don't think Maury's going to want to trade Simmons. I think that Simmons is going to be very great once he really establishes a jump shot. I think that's – and obviously everyone can kind of agree on that. You heard that from the beginning since he was drafted out of LSU. But the Atlantic division, you know, it's 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 going to be a very high competitive division. Obviously, these teams see each other more than any other teams across their schedule. I think they see each other like three or four times a year. Obviously, only the first half of the season got released. It's going to be very—it's a very great basketball conference or a division, and I'm excited to really watch it. Mm-hmm. And Chris, one final question: uh, yeah. one team in in the Atlantic uh, we didn't touch upon is the Knicks, and obviously they're the one team that you can pretty much assure is not going to make the postseason. Uh, but obviously, they were 21 and 45 last year, so not really a great record. I know they've been a bad franchise for a long time now. Uh, But is there any roster appeal to you? Is there any player to watch for them this season that could be like, hey, you know, this guy could be here for a while and maybe make some noise years down the line? Most definitely. Obi Topin and R.J. Barrett. Those are my two guys, right? We've heard the Obi Topin hype. I've watched him throughout college. He actually won the Naismith, so I've watched him throughout college. And on top of it, I think Obi Topin is the most – he was the most NBA-ready player in that draft class. Obviously, you guys know with with the Knicks and any young player, if you're not involved in a winning team, you're not going to get the coverage. You're not going to get the you're not going to get that spotlight on you, whatever the case is. Right. But with this Knicks team is like I mentioned before, the thing with the Knicks is that 
at least in my opinion, why they haven't been doing so well is because they haven't been utilizing the development aspect, their development assets. So I mean the Westchester Knicks, most definitely. Because you look at guys such as Kevin Knox, who they drafted in the past, even dating back to Cleanthony early, other guys there. If they utilize their G League well and actually sent guys down there to get minutes, even though they're not getting the runs they are on the current team, that speeds up development. That also keeps them on that track of development. And that's the thing that also kind of flips and flops. I'm a big fan of Leon Rose. I'll tell you that. I think that this guy is basketball IQs through the roof. I think you know, for him, his experience with CAA and just all the other stuff that you can name. I think the Knicks have a great future ahead. It's more of, okay, like kind of put the pieces together. Don't rush it. Uh, the thing with the Knicks is you, you see all these reports. Just because they're in New York does not mean teams the players want to play for them. I just I'm gonna throw that out there. It's everyone, I get it. It's the big it's New York City, bright lights, Mecca basketball, all that type of stuff. But why did Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving go across the bridge to Brooklyn? Is because they had a foundation there, they had winning there, they had a great front office there, and they understand what it takes to win because they took that patience and organic growth to get to that point. But um with the Knicks, I would say Obi Tobin and, and uh, R.J. Barrett. O- Obi Tobin, I think he's going to win Rookie of the Year. R.J. Barrett was my pick to win Rookie of the Year last year. He kind of did have a little slip-ups with uh, the, his development of the game, which I kind of talked about earlier. I wasn't, I'm wasn't. i not saying, hey, send this guy down to the G League. But I'm mostly saying that I think that once he puts everything together and really finds what his role is, then it's going to be interesting. But Obi Tobin is most definitely the player to watch. I agree. He's definitely a fun talent. Chris, uh, anything you would like to add before we let you go here tonight? Well, sorry, I got Santa Claus outside my house. I don't know if you guys hear <laughs> sirens out there. Anything like that, is, guys, uh, watch the Nets this year. I'm telling you, it's going to be a great season. Um, if there's any Nets fans listening, don't get your hopes too high. Don't start putting money down on them to win the championship. Don't be doing any of that stuff, but it's going to be a fun year. It's a great first step. And I believe that at the end of this era, we're definitely going to have one under the championship belt. Love it. Chris, thank you so much for the time tonight. We really appreciate it. And we hope to talk to you again in the future. Of course, man, you know how to reach me and had a great time doing this. So thank you guys for having me on. Absolutely. We'll do. All right. Thanks guys. All right. That was Chris Milholland reporter for the Brooklyn Nets and the Long Island Nets. You can find him at Nets Daily. Check out his articles on the team. And uh, I love these comments here in the comments section. Uh, Playoffs, playoffs, playoffs. Uh, Guarantees already, folks. Uh, Nets' biggest threat in the Atlantic, Celtics or Sixers. Um, Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's a fair argument. Kyle, you want to take that one? I would say Celtics. I I don't even know how you could go with the 76ers at this point, just based on what they've shown you the past couple years. They've just, they've absolutely fallen where the Celtics and Jason Tatum's first year were five minutes away from beating LeBron James and going to the NBA finals. And then even this year, they were a fantastic team. They've been a consistent and fantastic team to call the 76ers over them. I think is a little, you know, I get what you're saying, John, because they do have a little bit better of a defense, but they have so many questions on the offensive side of the ball. They have a question with, you know, what is Doc Rivers going to be with the 76ers? Because we saw for so many years, Doc Rivers had so much talent and yeah. just never got over the hump. And this 76ers team is nowhere near as talented as anything that he's really ever worked with, you know, from the early days of, 
DeAndre Jordan, Blake Griffin, and um, and Chris Paul to now even last year, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, Montrezl Harrell is a six man, Lou Williams is a six man. They don't have that in Philly. Although they did build a little bit of a deeper team, they don't have that. The the Celtics, if there's one thing that they could ride on the hill with, is that they have so much depth. They have some. They have at least two or they have at least three or four guys that you could count on for twenty points a game with Jason Tatum, with Jalen Brown, even maybe in Marcus Smart, Kemba Walker. You know as well once he gets healthy. Those are four guys that can give you potentially 20 points per game and good minutes as well. I'd say Celtics are still the favorite, but 76ers, I get the I get the point on defense. Get the hype, yeah. I was going to say the same thing, folks. And uh, let's talk about the Knicks briefly here before we dive into some college football and the NFL, folks. Uh, so the Knicks brought in Tom Thibodeau on a five-year deal to be their next head coach. Uh, he brought on some – you know, pretty good assistance. Obviously, Pat Sullivan is there. He brought back Mike Woodson as his top assistant, who is a, who is a former head coach of the Knicks. It seems like it's been a head coaching carousel for them over the past 10 years and pretty much this past eternity. Anyway, um, some moves they made in the offseason. They signed Nerlens Noel, Austin Rivers, Amari Spellman, Alec Burks, and Michael Kit Gilchrist, whose production has gone down. Um, in recent years, again, this is just another Kentucky one and done bust. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think Alec Burks is probably going to start at the two right now or the three. I'm not so sure. He's been starting for them. It's been him. It's been RJ. It's been. It hasn't been Mitch at center. It's been the other guy, Noel, and then no, they've no. gone Randall and. Did they go Alfred Payton at the Alfred point? Payton? Yeah. They're going veteran hard right now, which is the classic Thibodeau thing to do. Uh, Kyle, there's a lot of young guns on this roster, including RJ, who averaged over 14 points per game as a rookie. Frank Nitalikina, who is still there, longest tenure Nick, fourth-year vet now. I guess you could call him a fourth-year veteran, a polished veteran, as Lance Meadow would like to say. Uh, Kevin Knox and Mitchell Robinson. Now, I feel like the Knicks kind of know where RJ and Mitch are headed, there's a lot of promise and potential there. But are Knox and Frank busts, or are they struggling due to, as Chris kind of alluded to in our interview just moments ago, poor coaching and development by the Knicks organization? I think Frank you could label as a bust at this point in time because you've seen really no development in the game whatsoever on the offensive side of the ball over the course of four years now. I, we know he's a good defensive presence, but in this league he's just not valued enough unless you're dropping along with that at least 12 points per game, which he can't even do. He's not even getting bench minutes on this team that struggling to win 25 games in a season, which only furthermore shows you that, again, this is a team that should be looking forward to development, not necessarily winning, but looking forward to seeing what they have, and they don't even look to do that. I think you label Frank as a bust. Kevin Knox is a little too early. It's a little too early in a cluster of a coaching scenario. Um, Part of the Knicks organization, what they did – uh, they brought in the assistant uh, to John Calipari, uh, the assistant coach John Calipari from the uh, Kentucky Wildcats, who was under John Calipari for 10 years. And I'm not saying you do something for a single and sole uh, you know, perspective of a player, but I expect a big step up, you know, having that coaching presence with your old, you know, college team for Kevin Knox to potentially get into more of that role. But he's kind of played himself out of this rotation, potentially, I think so. I think this is a guy that could have, you know, in his uh, 
this is now his third year now. This is a guy that could have been getting, you know, 15, 20 minutes per game for the Knicks. This is a guy that's going to be starting off maybe with like eight minutes, guys, off the bench potentially, or maybe not even that because we saw how many pieces this Knicks team brought in potentially. And like you said, Tom, Tom Thibodeau is the guy that's going to want to – Tom Thibodeau is a guy that's hard to read. Tom Thibodeau is a guy that wants to put the best team out there, and that's not necessarily the team that is youngest and uh, and developing. He's going to look to put wins in the win column, and that could mean starting these older guys first because they have more experience. Mm-hmm. Like Nerlens Noel could potentially hinder the growth of a guy in Mitchell Robinson because Nerlens Noel has been around the block. He can potentially be a better center because Mitchell Robinson, as we talked with Chris before about Jared Allen, Jared Allen is kind of that old-school center, and that's where Mitch Fault is as well. He doesn't have that jump shot yet. He's kind of, you know, three feet – and under, you know, you're yep, going to make yep. a stop, but he doesn't He doesn't have anything else besides that. Where the Nerlens Noel has kind of developed that outside shot a little bit. Right. To wrap it all up with this point, Kevin Knox, I think, is a guy that can get that 8, 10 minutes off the bench. Frank Nilakina, I think, you know, it's, it's a goner. I'm surprised that he's still here, to be honest with you. I thought that would have been a, a piece that Leon Rose would have looked to move. Mm-hmm. Maybe they did try. Maybe they couldn't get anything for him. But I don't know. Folks, keep the comments coming. We really appreciate it. Uh, excellent stuff. I agree. I mean, look, it's a loaded front court now. You got Obi Topin there. Um, they got a good young guard out of Kentucky and Emmanuel Quickly, who a lot of people like. And then the local kid and Miles Powell, undrafted player out of Seton Hall. So yeah. he kind of could have potentially have that Alonzo Trier type effect. Um, potentially. Probably to a higher degree. We'll see. I know. Miles Powell made some noise in um, the Big East tournament a couple of years ago. He's definitely a fun player to watch. And the Knicks will open up, tip off their season against the Indiana Pacers next Wednesday, December 23rd. So that should be interesting going up against a couple of former players, former Knicks players on the Pacers. Um, I don't know, Kylo Quinn and Doug McDermott, a couple of former Knicks. So, you know, that should be fun to watch. Victor Oladipo still in Indiana, Damontis Sabonis. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the Pacers are a playoff team from last year. The Knicks are a young team looking to rebuild, and this is going to take a while. Yeah. I like Sal's point that he brought up. It will take five years or more, but it it needs to happen to lure in a marquee player right. And Knicks fans don't have that patience. I feel like the Knicks are reaching for veterans every year in free agency, one-year deals that just keep the fans satisfied where – if we're going to make record predictions right now, folks, the Knicks don't win more than 25 games this year, yeah. uh, especially in a 72-game season. It's just not going to happen. But considering you look at how the rest of their division is, it's going to be brutal. I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't try to get too down if you see the Knicks finish at the bottom again because there's a, I, I'd say there's about a 90% chance that's going to happen, uh, probably more. season starts so to add on to sal's point because he he brought in the fact of the new york rangers and how they kind of built their team up a little bit the new york rangers i you know they it's totally different viewing from the knicks even though they're owned by the same guy in james dolan james dolan is a guy that's notorious for not being hands-on with the hockey team and that's why in a sense as crazy it sounds but that's why they've had so much success right hiring the capable people and john davidson Uh, ben gordon is a good gm as well uh, along with a little luck in landing the number one overall pick and the number two overall pick. And <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and obviously the big splash of Artemi Panarin, Jacob Truba as well. That was a big acquisition. The problem with the Knicks is that, as Chris alluded to earlier, nobody's coming. Nobody 
views New York, the Mecca, as that same presence as it was 20 years ago because James Dolan has been hands-on with the basketball team. He has been involved. And it's almost yeah. diminished the team and its value in a sense to the point where you're now looking at Austin Rivers as one of the top freeze that the Knicks have acquired this offseason, which is absolutely insane considering how much money they had entering this offseason. They had all the money in the world to spend the top target that you get is Austin Rivers. Yeah. I get it. You're not a win-now team. But even, Tom, to your point, you know, these are Band-Aid deals. I don't th- – you're, you guys are – Tom, you're a Knicks fan. Does this does, Do any of these deals keep you intrigued to really watch a Knicks game? Uh, maybe aside from Obi Toppin, do any of these deals make you more attracted to go, uh, you know, it's a it's a Wednesday night. Let me let me turn on MSG and watch the Knicks right now. I don't think that any of these things do. Let me retort. Yeah. Number one, I'm not a Knicks fan. I, my, my, my family is Knicks fans. Okay. okay. I, I, I am – I am a Knicks fan by a fault. I, I, I will root for them to win, but you know where my loyalty lies. Yes. Um, but, yes, I will root for the Knicks. I loved Porzingis when he was here. But once Porzingis left, I mean, that was it. Yeah. That that was it for a lot of Knicks fans. I mean, you see why a lot of Knicks fans are just, uh, you know, de- deteriorating off right now because they've seen losing for so long. And uh, Tommy Mack brought up a good point. One-year deals for the salary cap options. How long long will this cycle repeat? I mean, uh, you're pretty much just reusing similar type of players with different names. Yeah, Uh, That's just the way I look at it. And you're going to see the same thing next year, I guarantee it. But uh, I just want to wrap this NBA segment up by saying the season will tip off a week from tonight. It'll be the Warriors at the Nets at 7, followed by the Clippers and the Lakers at 10 p.m. And the latter portion is going to be a lot of fun seeing uh, Montrezl Harrell oh, yeah. and Dennis Schroeder, uh, new additions for the Lakers. That should be real interesting uh, with LeBron and AD, of, of course. So, I don't yeah. know if you guys saw it or not real quick, but uh, ESPN released a report that the Lakers are 86% favorites to win the champion. Can you uh, – a percentage that high? I don't think I've ever seen that before. That's the kiss of death right there. That tells you some, somebody else is going to win it this year. That's – I don't. I don't think it's percent. Eighty-six percent. Well, let me tell you something. The the Clippers are still a good team. They, I mean, losing Montrezl Harrell is big, but I mean, they still got Lou Williams. They they got Zubox there. Uh, they got Kawhi and PG. So you know they're going to be a threat. I and mean, you yeah. have to look at other teams as well in the West. Uh, Portland has, is probably going to be back in the playoffs this year as a higher seed, knowing that the core they have acquiring Robert Covington. So it's going to be really fun to watch. But folks. Uh, we will talk more NBA next week, uh, and actually not so fast. Uh, pin that comment, James. Who are they supposed to sign or trade for? Well, um, <laughs> no, 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 Tommy, not for this, really not for this year. But you're talking about they're doing one-year deals now. Who are they supposed to sign in the future? You know, based off – and I could be wrong. Listen, maybe Tom Thibodeau is the coach to turn this around. But at this point, it's not even the coaching. It's just the talent that they're putting out on the court. It's just, it's just not there, and they haven't been a right. team that's necessarily the best at developing, developing that talent. I think Obi-Tap yeah. is a great pick and uh, some showtime talent, but aside from that, this, this team, R.J. Barrett fell off, Kevin Knox failed, Frank Nittalikina, it's, I mean, it's not there. Ron Baker so, fell off too, by the way. Yeah. I want to throw that we, in there. <laughs> before we move on to college football, my, I just want to make a quick note here for uh, the Knicks. Yeah. Um, maybe they – only get one hit wonder players. No, James, they don't even get that. They don't even get that. 
They don't even I mean, that. Jeremy Lin was a hot thing for what? A year? No, Jeremy Lin was a hot thing for three weeks. Jeremy Lin was Are, a not even. And then he left the Knicks. Well, yeah. he got hurt, yeah. didn't get hurt or whatever. But yeah, so that, that's my opinion on the Knicks. So I think we should move on to college. What 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 do we think? Yeah, I, I would agree. We already have a comment. But um actually before we get there, just want to announce that UCF quarterback Mackenzie Milton has decided to transfer not too far away to Florida State University where he will play for the Seminoles in the ACC. Um, this is a good decision by him. I feel like if he didn't get hurt, he'd probably still be the guy there. He was. But, they were. That was when they were undefeated, right? And then yeah. he got hurt like the game before their bowl game. He was unbelievable. Yep. yep. No, I, I agree. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that unfolds. Mackenzie Milton, that transfer portal is stacked right now. If you guys want some good college football content, uh, make sure to tune into From the Stand Sports on Friday. Go like the page on Facebook. It's called From the Stand Sports. Subscribe to them on YouTube. I'm a part of it, along with Andy Hopper and Brian McGardle. We talk all things college football, do some shots and chasers, games of the week, talk some hot seats and whatnot. Definitely a lot of fun. Uh, I love spending my Fridays with Andy Hopper, man. That's uh, that's something else. That's a hell of a Friday, man. That's yeah. A hell of a Friday. <laughs> but let's get to this LSU Florida game because I was watching this game Saturday night with my brother, and LSU pull off the upset, thirty-seven to thirty-four, ruining Florida's uh, college football playoff hopes. Or did they, John Suggs? NCAA football biggest loser is Florida. Florida Gators player throwing LSU player's shoe to get the flag. Kick the field goal. So LSU did not ruin um, (laughs) Florida's chances. Florida ruined their own chances. And that is why I believe the player's name is Marco Wilson. That shoe penalty set up the game-winning field goal for LSU. Head coach for the Gators, Dan Mullen, called this and described it as unfortunate. Where does Florida turn to now? Because you got to transition from this to playing Alabama in the SEC championship game just four days from now. I mean, listen, they'll be competitive. Kyle Trask, I mean, up until this game, I think that he was really leading the charge on the Heisman candidacy, and maybe he's still leading the charge on that even after this loss. Because, again, like John alluded to, it's even though he didn't have a great game, he threw two picks. It really wasn't his fault. They should have won this game. Um, But Cade York comes on the field. It's the game when the field goal. And then uh, McPherson, who I think they had a stat, like Cade York and him were almost the same player in terms of making ridiculously long field goals in college. They hadn't missed. And then McPherson goes um, wide left on the field goal and uh, uh, loses the opportunity to tie the game. It's just – Show the stats. It's, oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. It took a lot for LSU to win this game. I don't know if you guys saw the the the, inter- the ridiculous interception by the LSU where one threw it back inbounds and caught it on his knees right along the uh, right along the out of bounds line. Yeah, so that yeah. performances, but again, uh, to to bring up John's point, they they are they are the biggest losers because it would have been really interesting to see because they would have probably been ahead of Texas A and M at this point in time. And then, you know, not knowing potentially what can happen with the top four uh, for the remainder of the season, you know, I, I still think Florida can give Alabama a good, uh, a good game. I, I still think that's going to be a good game. It's not going to be a bad game, but you know, you ultimately put your nail in the coffin by losing this game to LSU, an unranked team this year, which is uh, terrible. Yeah, but you got to remember something: half their team from last year is in the NFL. Oh 
obviously, obviously they have their excuses, no doubt about losing Joe Burrow, losing Justin Jefferson, Clyde Edwards Lair. The I think almost half the offensive line got drafted. And as well. Yeah, of course. But I mean they're they're nowhere near what they once were. Even when they didn't have all that talent, they still were competitive, still competing in that top five. They're not even ranked now. To lose this game ultimately seals the deal and your chances to make it into that top four. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Here's your opinion. Oh, okay. I wasn't sure if Tom was. um, I think I even called that game for an upset. It was a very cool take last week, and I think I called it. I feel like we were talking about that with Jordan, and you said something in regards to LSU potentially winning that game. Because he was talking about, let's see if Ed Orgeron can prove that, you know, he's a legitimate uh, coach that could win without the talent. And then I think James said something along the lines, like, I think, I think he'll be able to pull one through. Yeah. Games with these crazy pulls, man, you do it all the time. And it's just, it happens. Which real quick, I do want to shout out Jordan Spurgeon, our guest on review and preview last week. He called the Arizona state football game Saturday night in Arizona for uh, blaze radio out. Uh, in the desert, and another comment for John Suggs, next Auburn head coach. I don't see Cristo Ball, Oregon head coach, leaving. I could see Jamie Chadwell, Coastal Carolina, lowest paid head coach and on the feet of the season, or even a Steve Sarkeesian. Um, yeah, man. I mean, Auburn, who is their head coach? Uh, Wes Miles or something? No, 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 no. What was his name? Um, McCholson? What's his name? Um, yeah, was, Coach Malzen, Malzen, Gus Malzen, Gus Malzen, the guy with the visor. Yeah, yeah, yep. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm gonna tell, I'm gonna tell you right now, it's an unfortunate situa- situation when you play in the SEC every year. You're going to rack up losses. That's the reality of the situation. Yep, Gus the bus. He's no longer running it in Auburn. So, no pun intended. Anyway. Um, <laughs> There were other really, really crazy games, but I just want to say that before we get there, I actually forgot to mention this. Not only did true freshman quarterback for LSU, Max Johnson, go off in this game, but Florida had 609 yards of offense and lost. 609 yards of offense and you lose. That's the equivalent of four Giants games. Yeah. Three, three, four, but you get the, you get the point. Um, Anyway, number 17, UNC, destroys number 10, Miami, 62-26. to 26. Um, uh, Unfortunately, Fonz DeFalco's team is now out of the top 10. UNC running back Michael Carter ran for 308 yards and two touchdowns on just 24 carries. Unbelievable, Kyle. And then other UNC running back, Javante Williams, had 23 rushes for 236 yards and three touchdowns. UNC had... 778 total yards of offense. That is correct, folks. You heard us. 778 total yards of offense and 554 yards on the ground compared to Miami only rushing for 75 yards. You want to talk about a David and Goliath stat line right there. Miami was another team that I was pulling for because the only loss that they had all season going into this game was Clemson. So it's like, I mean, what Tom, do we know where they were ranked? Were they ranked at 10 beforehand, or now they're ranked yeah. at 10? They were ranked at 10 beforehand. Now they're not even 
I made I made this script before the rankings came out today, but I mean we can check where Miami is right now. I'll tell you they're probably below fifteen. I would yeah, I would I would have to imagine, but uh, I mean that's unbelievable, especially because Miami doesn't they don't have a bad defense, and the Eric King, he's not a bad quarterback either. You know, earlier in the season he was he was uh, getting some votes for potentially him being the Heisman. You know, until Kyle Trask was performing the way that he was performing, and obviously Trevor Lawrence, even though he did have COVID, you know he'll still get some votes as well. But my goodness, my yep. goodness, 500, 500 plus rushing yards. Oh, my God. I yeah. was going for Miami. UNC has been a good team this year, but 500 rushing yards. I want to quickly shout out Brian McGardle from, from the stands who called it that Miami would not be able to stop their rushing attack. I picked the Hurricanes, and I think he kind of weaned towards Miami as well, but Andy did pick the Tar Heels, and he happened to be right. On that, because the Tar Heels just went off with their rushing attack. Sam Howell had a good game. De'Ara King did not have a good game. And not to mention UNC had the ball for over 40 minutes, which, by the way, I do have the official ranking for Miami. They are 18th in the college football playoff, 19th in the AP poll. Thank you for the comment, John. And we'll get to your Ohio State question in just a moment. But De'Ara King, not good, had a pick. Brevet Jordan was good tight end, somebody that, um, you know, was probably going to get drafted in the next year or so, 140 receiving yards. But overall, just a utter disappointment for Miami. Not good. UNC took it to the house. Welcome back, James. Thank you. Had to blow my nose. Sorry about that, guys. Nice. Uh, yeah, you know, it is the season. So um, to be sniffy. So we'll, uh, we'll move on to USC and UCLA, the night chaser. Uh, UCLA West Coast game. They were at home. They lost to USC late last second, forty-three to thirty-eight. There are some wild games on Saturday night. Oh my goodness! And last second heroics. Kevin Slovis had a touchdown pass to Amon Ross St. Brown. Uh, his brother played for the Irish. Um, with sixteen seconds left, Gary Bryant Jr. then would return the ensuing kickoff, fifty-six yards to UCLA. 43-yard line after USC was down. So at that point, USC's down 38-36. This score's going back and forth. I'm just sitting there. I'm like, there's no way. And then the touchdown of St. Brown with 16 seconds left. I mean, what a what a wild finish. Slovis had five touchdown passes. St. Brown had 10 catches for two touchdowns. Drake London had a pair of scores. And then Vaughn's over 120 receiving yards and a score as well. Kyle, these boys for the Trojans went off. It's a shame that the Pac-12 only played a few games this year because I feel like UCLA could at least flirt with the discussion. Oh, yeah, no doubt. And and USC as well because I know that obviously they rank 15 right now. I was looking – Slovis was a question mark for me. Even though he's had a good season, these last three games now in terms of rushing the football, and obviously he's not a rushing quarterback, but negative 11 yards, negative 20, negative 20. <laughs> Yeah. Was, I thought that was going to be a factor, and we saw, you know, it came down to the last seconds of the game. But UCLA, man, I mean, Chip Kelly, I, I, I he's had a he's had a bad season. He's had a bad season with this team, yeah. and even though it is a shortened season, I just don't. I, I don't know. I don't know. It was a good listen. It was a good game to watch. I tuned in towards the last. I think I watched the last. I tuned in like midway through the three 
turned you it back. Watched it after Florida ended. If you were yeah. watching that one, yeah, I, I did the same thing. Yeah, but um, it was a good game. But I don't know. I'm just gonna leave it off of that. It was a good game. It was a good game. Very entertaining. Before we advance further with that, Sal's comment: 500 rushing yards for UNC. Is it the team's fault or the defensive coordinator's fault? Where were the in-game adjustments? Well, Sal. Um, Tommy Thigpen, he didn't call the best game. That's UNC's DC, but you have to remember something. Williams and Carter are two of the top were two of the top 12 rushers in the nation going into this game. And we kind of knew Miami was going to have trouble. I just thought that De'Ara King, transfer quarterback, by the way, was going to not go out that way on senior day. I thought Miami was going to win. Uh, I, I don't think it has much to do with Tommy Thigpen. I, I, I think it's a combination of a poor game plan and they're just getting outmatched in the trenches. UNC is a lot bigger up front, and they, they just moved people that entire game, Kyle and James. They, they were just dominant. I mean, it's kind of like uh, an 18-wheeler coming at you, <laughs> and there, there's really nothing you could do. I mean, to put up 500 yards, I mean – Tom, you were just saying that wide receivers are putting up these numbers, you know, throughout college football to put 500 yards on the ground. That's like, you're talking about at least when I was in high school, that's almost like a high school running back. Yeah. 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 Numbers in a sense. Um, For my opinion on Sal's comment, it sounds more of a defensive problem. Right. Yeah. You know, because – 500 yards. NFL, you're probably getting fired the next day. Right. (laughs) Let's get back to USC, UCLA uh, to cut the time here. Uh, Their tight end, Dulcich, had a great game. I had him as a key player. UCLA actually outgained USC in typical Chip Kelly fashion. They outgained USC 549 to 444 and lost. The other game we're going to recap quickly, Army beat Navy 15-0. Game only had two completed passes. If you love a good running game, that's what you got. <laughs> Gotta love that. Army running back Tahir Tyler had 96 rush yards and one touchdown. Actually, we had an Army Navy pregame show on our channel Friday night, hosted by Gabe Fleeton with Army beat reporter Sal Interdonato. If you want to watch that, check that out on our channel. It is up on our page. Yeah, so Army has now won four out of the last five meetings. I thought this was old-school, clean football. It was nothing pretty, nothing sexy out there. But, look, Army was the better team. Uh, you know, they they played against, I want to say, Cincinnati this year and lost 24-10. to 10. They were hanging tough in that game, and, you know, they, they proved it. I mean, Army-Navy game is always close. It's always tough. Navy had their opportunities, but shout-out Army, man. You got to love this old school type of game. You got to love it. You got to love it. Yeah, no, it was definitely a good game. Definitely a good game. And our Army's a ranked team. Uh, actually, I don't know if they are. Yeah, they, they are a ranked team. They're 22, I believe, as of last week. But I don't know if that's changed. Uh, but, yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. As you can see, the college football playoff rankings below on our ticker. Those are the top ten. Updated, make sure to check that out. Crazy how my how Indiana is seven with a backup quarterback with Jack Tuttle. That's astonishing. And then this week we have our conference championship games. The Pac-12 championship game will feature Washington at number 15, USC. The Big Ten will be number 14, Northwestern at number four, Ohio State. And John posted a comment earlier. 
uh, around 8.06. Is it fair for Ohio State to get in? Strength of schedule is like 79th. And, um, John, your point is like legit because Ohio State got a lot of help from the Big Ten. They should not have been able to qualify for the Big Ten title game. This is an effort by the Big Ten to get them in because they know Ohio State is the only team that would give them a chance to go all the way. You had months to think about how you're going to plan with these protocols, and you failed. Uh, The ACC got a full season in. So the the rule was that they had to play at least six games to qualify, and Ohio State only played five, but obviously due to COVID, they made an exception for it. But like you said, Tom, just trying to get them in. Listen, they're a good team. Uh, they just didn't have the opportunities due to COVID, and, you know, it's rough. They couldn't get it under control. They had one of the worst cases in uh, college collegiate sports. They had one of the worst cases, but we'll see. That, that Listen, that'll be a debate for the – because they're not – obviously they're not moving into the top four most likely. It'll be a debate to see, you know, is it valid if they wind up knocking off one of these teams, you know, potentially moving on to the national championship game. Is it a valid championship? Is it – you know, that'll be – Will this have an asterisk next to it because they didn't play? They only played five games this season. Crazy. I'm going to talk about for the next month and a half. What was what was that comment you just pinned, James? Something about I mean, it by accident. It just Washington will not play. Oh, he's right. And I, I, I got the notification on my phone actually right before we went live. I kind of just skimmed over it. Washington had to get pulled out because of COVID issues. So Oregon's now. Rep- yep, there it is. Yep. Oregon's replacing them. So they have an opportunity to play against USC. So, I mean, I guess good for Oregon. Uh, a shame for Washington, a team that only lost one game. But I know a small sample size, only four games. But, you know, I mean, I, I think USC has this Pac-12 title. It'll be interesting. Big Ten, Ohio State, Northwestern, Ohio's only hope of making the college football playoff is to win this game. If they lose, they're out. Yeah. I- I would love to see Northwestern pull off the upset. <laughs> I, I don't think they're going to win, though. I, I'll, I'll be blunt; they're, they're not going to win this football. What's the What's the line on this? What's the uh... Uh, the line? It's twenty and a half in favor of Ohio State. Does Northwestern cover that line? They've been playing good football this year. They had a bad loss to Michigan State, but you know they beat Wisconsin. Yeah. They crushed Maryland in the beginning of the year. They beat yeah. Iowa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't sleep on Northwestern. It will, it will be closer than people think. Yeah. yeah no. No, I mean, I, I hope you're right, John. I hope you're right. As a Notre Dame fan, I hope you are correct. Uh, Big 12, we have Oklahoma, number 11, at Iowa State ranked number seventh. That should be interesting. I'll be rooting for the Sooners in that game. Obviously, all these games are being played at a neutral site, but that should be a fun one to watch. The Big 12 was kind of down this year. I mean, Oklahoma struggled early on. The Cowboys late struggled on the road. Uh, James's West Virginia Mountaineers weren't good. No, that's okay. That's good. Yeah. We don't have to worry about them, right? Yeah. No, we're good. Yeah. No, uh, funky music here tonight. But anyway, uh, <laughs> Then we have the Sun Belt, and the Sun Belt has been making a lot of noise. We have Louisiana, 9-1 team, going up against Coastal Carolina, 11-0, a team who beat Liberty and then upsets BYU, and now they, they still find themselves undefeated, pushing the top 10. I mean, Coastal probably has like a 1% shot of getting in because it's four teams, but um, 
I'm going to tell you something. This Coastal team, if they win, don't be surprised to see them in the top 10 next week. I'm, I'll be honest with you. This game is probably the dark horse game of the week. That Coastal defense is fire. Their defense is phenomenal. Grayson McCall is up to the call every single week. I mean, he's a freshman quarterback. He's been a lot of fun to watch. C.J. Marable at running back, too. I mean, he, he's been a beast. So watch out for that coastal wave, good boys. Yeah, Levi Lewis for uh, Louisiana has been really good this year as well. It'll be an interesting game because when they played each other earlier in the year, it was a tight game. I believe the final score was like 30-27. to 27. So that should be a good game this weekend. Agreed, 100%. I, I totally – feel that i think it'll be closer than people think because a lot of people are beginning to ride that coastal wave they're seeing all the games that they're playing against these ranked teams and you know we look over to the american and surprisingly it's two ranked teams again we have tulsa coming in at number 24 going up against the uh seventh ranked bearcats of cincinnati and i got cincinnati in this game and i'll be honest with you if ohio state loses Cincinnati might make the college football playoff. That'd be a huge jump from number nine. Right now, by the way, Tom. Right now they're at number nine. I don't. I don't, I don't know where you got. Yeah, they're at number nine, and Tulsa's at twenty-three, according to what I'm reading. What uh, what do you got up there? Oh, this must have been updated right before we went live. No, oh, they're they're sick. Oh, you're right. They are nine. Okay. Yeah, oh, it is six. I don't understand how you put a two-loss team above an undefeated team just yeah. because they're in the Big 12 to the, the American. Because Cincinnati, the American Conference has been very improved this year. Yeah. I mean, there, there's some good teams in there. I mean, and the Big 12's had a down year. I'm kind of surprised to see Iowa State that high. And Florida's still at number seven, which I understand because they have an opportunity to play against Bama this weekend. But – I would still put Cincinnati over them. I'd put Cincinnati over Iowa State. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be crazy for sure. Yeah. Cincinnati and Tulsa. That's if they play because I don't know if um, – because they, they're thinking about canceling it. I don't, I don't know if they have yet, but there's a chance. Oh, it is canceled actually. Cincinnati – Cincinnati and no, it hasn't been canceled. It got canceled last weekend. Oh, you're right. Oh. Yes, you're right. Yeah, but now it's scheduled for this weekend. David, that game has been canceled a lot. So they were scheduled to play Tulsa week seven, and that got postponed. <laughs> they never played it, and then when it came to last weekend, that got canceled, and then moved up to this weekend. Hopefully, it finally gets played this season for these two teams. Yeah. And then the last two, we have the SEC, Bama against Florida. I mean, I think Bama is going to win. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be able to hang in there for too long in this game. Uh, Figure out what the line is for that. I'm pretty sure Bama is favored by a lot to a little. Uh, Only 17. 17. Yeah. I mean, I think they could definitely cover that for sure. I mean, it depends how Trash comes out. If he plays like a Heisman – candidate then i think florida has a shot to cover that is straight up but we will see we will see and you know what this is the game that really ticks uh ticks me off guys uh how the hell is clemson favored by 10 and a half over notre dame i'm sorry but is there that much of a jump from yui Youngalale to trevor lawrence notre dame beat them and they're underdogs by 10 and a half at least make it a single digit line in clemson's favor come on 
I mean, there's all this hype about Trevor Lawrence, but Yui Ungolale is probably a top 10 quarterback in college football. He just happens to be sitting behind the best one. So the fact that Notre Dame is a 10.5-point underdog with the way their defense has played really elite is really darn stupid, if you ask me. I think it's too much of a spread um, margin differential, but you know, you're going to have – Anthony come back. He's not going to rush for 28 yards again. This oh, by the way, uh, 28 yards, I was about to say. That's not going to happen again, and I would be really surprised, although Kyron has been fantastic, it would be really surprising to see him put three touchdowns up on the board rushing for uh, for Clemson and this well-coached team in Dabo Sweeney, not taking anything away from the win in which Notre Dame put together because that was still a terrific win no matter what quarterback was behind center. I think the margin you're right is too big. I'm not surprised that obviously Clemson is favored, but the margin is too big in my personal opinion as well. And John brings up some good points again. Thank you for the comments, John. And go get it. Get his one before that. I want to read that one to the folks. Clemson is favored because of Trevor. I've been saying that DJ is just as good. And he very well might be right. DJ could be I – mean, I'm, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say that, but obviously Trevor Lawrence is the best quarterback in college football right now, as we know. But – I still think Notre Dame has a shot in this game, even with Lawrence, because here's my thing. It's not just the defense. It's Notre Dame's offensive line and their running back. They absolutely blew up Clemson's front seven last time they played. They couldn't stop Kyron Williams, who's being compared to Dalvin Cook. This guy's a sophomore being compared to Dalvin Cook. That is an outstanding comparison right there. Yeah. And with the way yeah. he's playing all over them, he's been phenomenal this season, not to mention he's a great receiver out of the backfield as well. And Michael Mayer is getting Hayden Hurst comparisons. So, like, you know, this could potentially be a guy that – I mean, those could potentially be two future first-round picks on our offense right there. Yeah. So I think this is the first time in a while I say Notre Dame has a legit shot to beat a Clemson team not once, but twice. And what's crazy, guys, is who, regardless of who wins this game, these two teams might meet again for a third time this season in a potential 2-3 matchup, depending on what happens. But uh, I just want to say, do you think – this is what I think is going to happen. If Notre Dame wins, Clemson will still get in with two losses, but they'll drop to the four. That, that's, what I, that's what I'm thinking. I don't think Clemson drops out even with two losses – where do you guys stand with that? Um, do you think that Clemson still makes the college football playoff with two losses? I think one of them was without Trevor. I think they have to, but I don't even think they fall to the four because that would mean that ultimately you're moving Ohio State up, and you're not going to move Ohio State up with only five games played at the moment in time right now, and obviously they play Northwestern this upcoming weekend. I don't think that Ohio State's going to move from four I think that Clemson will, even if they do lose, they'll stay at three. And then if they wind up winning, they might flip-flop in spots with the two and three. Right. But I don't see any way in which Ohio State would, you know, advance further up, granted on behalf of the fact of the amount of games in which they played this season. You know, they already, they already had to bend the rule for them to get in. They're not going to allow them to furthermore advance. I don't think so. I do, and here's, and here's why. Uh, I'm not disagreeing with your point, but, um, well, I, I kind of am. Yeah. If you're a fan of college football, wouldn't you want to see Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence tee off in the national championship game? Let, let's be real. Do you want to see Ian Book and Matt jo- Matt, Mac Jones? No. You want to see Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence. And I'll be honest with you, I think 
an undefeated Ohio State team that wins the Big Ten championship should at least be put one spot ahead of a two-loss team that lost to the same team twice. Not because, look, I don't think Ohio State's a better team than Clemson. I really don't. But don't lose football games. Just, you, I mean, you can't lose games. I, I think, Kyle, that's maybe – I would say that's the counter-argument to your point, but I don't necessarily think your point is wrong at, at all. I think no. there's a very good chance Clemson stays – Put, but I, I wouldn't be surprised either if they jump Ohio State because, I mean, it's pretty simple. No losses to two losses. I get the strength of schedule. I understand both losses are against the team in the college football playoff. But I guess my last question here before we wrap this segment up and move on to the NFL, can Notre Dame get in with one loss? Because a lot of people are saying they're pretty much certain to get in with a loss unless something absolutely crazy happens this weekend. I just don't think there's a team that could jump them. I mean, you get Cincinnati playing Tulsa. As long as as long as Alabama takes care of business. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's what I was going to say. If if Florida didn't if Florida did not lose to LSU and then wind up beating Alabama, that would be the team I'd worry about. Texas A&M, they lost Alabama earlier in the year, but they match up against Tennessee. So I don't think that's really going to do anything in, for them to get yeah. into that top four. Um, I don't see any which way in which they fall out. Right? Because even if they do lose Notre Dame, they beat them earlier in the year. Right. So it, it, it's a, it's a, it negates each other. It's you know, hard. You win, but you, you lost to a fantastic college football team at the same time. Yeah. I think you'll wind up moving down from that two spot, but you're not going to move out of the top four. Right. 100%. Yeah. Um, Let's move on to the NFL. And Kyle, congratulations on being the Week 14 winner. And Gabe is our Week 14 loser. And 14 weeks strong, baby. I have not missed a lot. <laughs> I'm still holding to that. Um, that, should, that should be a lot of fun. But, I mean, briefly, because we, we do have uh, a time limit here tonight, Um Let's talk about some of these games over this past week. Uh, the Rams took care of business on Thursday night football. They beat the Patriots. And then, um, you know, former Patriot quarterback Tom Brady on Sunday with the win against the Vikings. Tampa Bay has now won seven of their last nine against the Vikings. And that had a lot of playoff implications in this game. Speaking of Tom Brady, I mean, I pretty much think Tampa Bay at this point is probably – locked in to be one of the top wild card teams. I think they fall in either five or six at this point, and they'll probably draw either try, – uh, I'm trying to think. They'll probably draw either the winner of the NFC East or the three seed. It depends how Seattle and L.A. finishes. Where I think L.A. is going to wind up winning that division. Yeah. Seattle's going to get the winner of the NFC East, whether it's – the, the Giants or Washington. But, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I think – but Brady's never won a Super Bowl without a first-round bye. I mean, I do think this Tampa Bay team is slightly overrated. But I, I do think they also have the talent to pull the strings together in the playoffs and potentially make a run to the NFC Championship game if chips fall into their place. And they really, even in the game, it wasn't in. They didn't. They didn't show me anything special about what this team has proclaimed to be all year round. You know, the offense has yet to click. They only have three games left in the regular season against really, really bad teams. So you're not going to be proving anything if you're going to be running all over Atlanta's defense. Could play them twice 
And then Matt Stafford potentially might be out for the rest of the year. So what are you going to prove against who's Detroit's backup quarterback at this point in time? Because that's that's who they play for the remainder of the schedule. You know, they, they haven't, besides the Green Bay game, they haven't shown me that they're a legit team. Even in this game, Tom, and like I said earlier before the show even started, I didn't even know it, but Dan Bailey missed four field goals. That's the reason why this game had the margin of which it did of 12 points. Otherwise, it would have been a lot closer against a Minnesota team that hasn't had a defense all year round. And for that team to be as close as they were, with obviously the exception of Dan Bailey missing field goals, knowing the offensive unit that Tampa's assembled, this isn't really a, a win to necessarily. This is a must-win, obviously, but this isn't a, a real big win to you know be legitimately happy about. I think the Bucks' their road is to draw the winner of the NFC East and then avoid yeah. the Saints in round two. If they can get a team like the Packers, their defense can compete, and yeah. their Green Bay's defense is not good. As much as I love the Packers in this year. I, I do think the Bucks could potentially present the challenge to them because look what happened when they played against each other, you know? So that's something to keep in the back of our mind as well. I don't necessarily think Tampa Bay is getting legit wins, Kyle. I think it's more where they're set up and the type of matchups they could potentially get a team below 500, a team like the Packers. I think that is their potential road to the title game, uh, regardless of who it's against. I think they're the one wild card team that you have to keep an eye on regardless of record. Um, and by the way, they're still in the mix for that division somehow, but yeah. probably not for too much longer. No, not a troop comes back. Yeah, no. But Chiefs-Dolphins, and this is this was probably the game of the week for the 1 o'clock. Uh, yeah. yeah. The Chiefs won. They were ahead in this game 30-7, to and then the Dolphins came back without their number one wide receiver and Devontae Parker. They lost Mike Jasicki in the third quarter to an arm injury. They were going out there with Durham Smythe. They didn't even have Miles Gaskin. They didn't have their best running backs in there. Yeah. Patrick Laird was getting carries. I think Salvin Ahmed was banged up as well. So yeah, they had, it was DeAndre Washington who they yeah. had for the deadline. Yeah. Like a, a, a Raiders, a former Raiders kick return man was their starting <laughs> running back. And they forced Mahomes to throw three interceptions, probably took the worst sack that we've seen in football this year, negative 23-yard sack. Yeah, Jerome Baker, that was probably a candidacy for a sack of the year. Yeah, Jerome Baker's a lot of fun to watch too, by the yeah. way. And yeah. Those veterans like Kyle Van Noy, uh, Byron Jones, who they played a lot of money, he's living up to the hype. And uh, surprisingly, Andrew Van Ginkle it ha- has been really, really good too. Yeah. They have guys on that defense that are just coming out of no- – and remember, they lost Vince Beagle to start the year. He was supposed to be you know, one of their linebackers interior, and Brian Flores has just done an outstanding job with this football team yeah. uh, making the potential MVP front runner to flop. And they only lost by one possession. So now my thing is – how legit is this Miami team? Because they're sitting – because we know who the Chiefs are. Yeah. We know who the Chiefs are. The Dolphins are 8-5. and five, And now they have a divisional matchup against New England this week, who they lost to back in week one, 21-11. But we don't know if Parker is going to play. We don't know if Jasicki is going to play. I'll, t- I'll tell you something. I trust uh, – despite all the opt-outs, I trust Belichick and New England's defense a little more than Kansas City. So I think personally that 
they could potentially fall into that trap. You know, I know they didn't win against Kansas City, but New England could really pose a challenge for Miami. It's like, how legit really is this team? We don't know that yet. I think this defense is, you know, and it's crazy to see because we, we, we've had defenses in the past where we absolutely raved about them. You know, the 49ers last year, in the yeah. beginning of the year with the Steelers, three years ago with Saxonville, which lasted a year and then ultimately crumbled. Nobody talks about this Dolphins defense. Do you guys know that Xavier Howard has like 10 interceptions on the year? Who's going back to the Miami Dolphins? He's absolutely unbelievable. It's either nine or ten, but he's had an interception in like six or seven consecutive games. Byron Jones is doing what Byron Jones has done throughout his entirety of his career, quietly being one of the best shutdown corners in all of football. This defense, along with Tom, everybody you just listed, absolutely incredible. And one thing is, is you know, people judged whether or not taking just uh, Tua over Justin Herbert was the move. Not that I don't love me some Justin Herbert, but Tua's legit. Tua is legit. He just he just looks different. He looks like he can be the franchise guy for the next 15 years. He's so calm. You would think a guy who's only starting in his fourth or fifth game, losing his starting tight end, losing his starting receiver, not even using a third-string running back, would be under a tremendous amount of pressure, no matter what the defense was giving you on the other side of the ball. This guy is calm, 316 yards, two touchdowns. Yes, he had a pick. But like Tom, you said, the Chiefs do have a good defense. They don't have a bad defense. They have a lot of great names on that side of the ball. And to keep Patrick Mahomes, the MVP, which we'll talk about in a little bit as well, to keep him on his heels like that, three interceptions for Patrick Mahomes, that's unheard of. That's unheard of. Yeah. Bruce, you bring up a good point with Tua. And then you bring up a point where you talk about the defense. Yeah, some of the guys' names on the defense probably not many people heard of, myself and Tom included, is because there's a lot of talk around the quarterbacks. Yeah, it's, it's Magic or Tua. People yeah. forget about that defense. Yeah. So when the media is only talking about the quarterback, everything else kind of gets forgotten about. So for their defense to pretty much stand up to a juggernaut in Kansas City is phenomenal. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I was going to say defenses get no love. That's why there hasn't been a defensive MVP since Lawrence Taylor. But yeah, uh, humble brag right there for us Giants fans. But yeah. uh, besides <laughs> the point, uh, you're right. The de- They spent a lot of money in the offseason on this defense. Byron Jones, Kyle Van Noy. The list goes on, and you have to look at them now and say, are they a legit playoff team? There's a chance that they could fly. Their schedule's not easy these last couple of weeks, guys. They have some difficult games. I'm not so sure they get in. Uh, look, I, I personally, I don't think they match up great against New England right now. Belichick knows Flores. It's going to be a challenging game. I, I think it's going to be a very tight, close game, um, but we will get to that game in a little bit Tennessee rolls over Jacksonville 31 to 10 Derrick Henry continues to be uh, a walking machine 215 rushing yards and two scores King AJ Brown 100 yards and a mm-hmm. score Orson Gardner Minshew come in to relief for Mike Glennon who will start 
next week. That Tennessee team, that if their defense can get it together, man, that they they're a championship contending team. That's a problem. Their their offense is pretty darn good, and I like their tight end duo of Ferkser and Jonu Smith. That's a pretty good tight end duo to have. Yeah, yep. the problem is their defense fraudulent. Yeah, the, the not even their defense, just their just their cornerbacks. The cornerbacks are absolutely horrible. I know they traded for Desmond King to try to improve upon that, but he's been terrible as well um, since coming over from the Chargers midway through the season. Um, Dallas took care of Cincinnati. Andy Dalton had two touchdowns in his homecoming game against the Bengals. Yeah, how about them Cowboys? Denver beats Carolina 32-27. to Drew Locke with a career-high Four touchdown passes. Uh, Penn State alum K.J. Hamler had two of them. And before we get to Houston and Chicago, John Suggs has a comment. Main question I have for the Titans is, are they going to be a repeat in the playoffs? And teams shut down Henry. I'm a little confused. But- how, how Henry had back-to-back 200-yard games, and then when they played, um, who did they play in the last game where he was just shut down? Kansas City. Yeah, you know, I can I can really see that because you're gonna, John, you're gonna be running into a lot more tougher defenses potentially than I think we saw last year. Indianapolis defense juggernaut. Mm-hmm. The Steelers, even though they don't have Bud Dupree and Devin Bush, juggernaut defense. Baltimore and Cleveland, even though the shootout didn't look like that, they both have pretty good defenses that they could potentially run into in the Titans. Will they be able to stop? Derrick Henry, I'm not – the only one I'd be confident on that has a legitimate shot is probably – I can't even say the Colts because he ran all over the Colts. Ah, I don't know. But, again, <laughs> you Derrick Henry, they could run him into the ground as well. Ryan's had right. the bigger question where is he going to be legitimate enough to overcome maybe the downplay of Derrick Henry where he has a normal running back game of around 85 yards to 100 yards and not have to run 215 yards to win the football game. I think, too, last year the AFC was not as good. No. Now the teams are a lot better. Tennessee would draw 4-5 against Cleveland right now at home if the season were to end today. But uh, speaking of the AFC, the Houston Texans traveled to Chicago and fell flat. Deshaun Watson got hurt in this game, came back. Chicago – Tore them apart, 36-7. to This is a game we all picked in Houston's favor, except for James. He picked the Bears. Uh, again, this is the one where we're just like, why the hell are you picking this team? And then they, they <laughs> turn around and win. Uh, the Bears' defense had seven sacks. This is the most team sacks they've had since 2005. Yeah. Had 23 points in the second quarter. Mitch Trubisky, three touchdown passes. David Montgomery over 100 yards and 11 rushes. Allen Robinson over 120 receiving yards. And Mitch Trubisky is a better career record than the Sean Watson, oddly enough, because they had that 12-4 and year two years ago with that big Bears defense. But more importantly, is Mitch Trubisky the guy in Chicago? Because when they were 3-0, and oh, Mitch isn't good enough. And then they call for Nick Foles, and then their, their, their season went downhill really, really fast. Now that Trubisky's back, yes, they lost to Green Bay. I get it. But the Bears are still alive, and I, I I think Mitch Trubisky is the guy in Chicago. I think the issue is you got to get him a better coach to work with than Matt Nagy, and that offensive line, man, it's terrible. It's really I, I don't think he's that bad. I mean, I don't think he's that great, but I don't think he's that bad. I don't think he's that bad, but this is also we got to remember the matchup. Houston's defense is Not good. Like bottom thirty 
They're, they're like yeah. 30, 31, 32 in the entire league, as well as Deshaun Watson has absolutely nobody because the, uh, his head coach slash GM traded away the best receiver in football in the offseason. Then his number one got suspended for the rest of the year due to PED use, and he's suspended the rest of the year in Will Fuller. This guy is nobody out there, and you're playing a top three defense in football right now. Yeah. I'm not taking anything away from Mitchell Trubisky. I thought he had a great game. It was a statement game upon his career because this is something that he can show and say, you know, it, maybe it's not me. Maybe I just need a little more talent in front of me on the offensive line specifically. Because when they had guys like Kyle Long, they were a much better offensive line, much better. I think David Montgomery is an underrated running back, and I think that's on behalf of the fact that the offensive line sucks. Allen yep. Robinson is good. Anthony Miller is good. Jimmy Graham still has a little bit left in him. I think so. That, that should be enough on the offensive side of the ball. And with a defense like that, you shouldn't have to put up that many points. Um, the Jets lose to the Seahawks. <laughs> uh, 13 straight losses this year. Longest streak in team history. The Jets scored on their opening drive, though, for the seventh straight game. Oddly enough, you don't see an 0-13 team doing that. Uh, the Sam Darnold, 132 passing yards compared to Russell Wilson's four touchdown passes. Jamal Adams in his return game against the Jets had five tackles and a sack along with the TFL. And you guys are going to enjoy this stat. Seattle outgained the Jets 410 to 185. Will the Jets win a football game? Their remaining games are against the Rams, the Dolphins, and the Patriots. And if I had to put my money on one of them, I'd say the Jets Bill Belichick may come up with a plan if they're out of the postseason to intentionally lose this game to avoid the Jets drafting Trevor Lawrence. And that Jacksonville gets him. What do you all think about that? Um, I, can totally, well, we, I can totally see that happening. Absolutely, Because it looks like they've ultimately given up on the Cam Newton experiment. I think we could all say that that has failed. Because, again, if you can't succeed under Bill Belichick as a, as a quarterback or as a player – it's going to be really difficult for you to succeed anywhere else. So I could totally see them throwing in Jarrett Stidham or somebody like that week 17 against Sam Darnold and them legitimately having a chance. I mean, listen, they, they went 30-27, to 27 and the Jets led the entire game with Cam Newton in there. So if you put Jarrett Stidham in there, you're not going to tell me that the Jets don't have a chance. The Jets have a chance in that week 17 yeah, matchup. But then I think the Jets are going to be like, all right, let's start dropping the balls on purpose then. Everyone was saying, you know, the Jets have been playing better the last few weeks, and you went up against the Raiders' defense that was really bad, and then you went up against the Seahawks' team that was pissed off, and you could thank your next-door neighbors because of it. (laughs) Well, I Uh, I also think Jamal Adams also fed into that defense. I mean, come on. He he finally gets moved off of the Jets, and then he can easily obliterate them. So he fired up that defense, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, It looks like John Suggs agrees with me. Yep. Uh, yeah. I, would love, I would love to see Jacksonville get Trevor Lawrence over the Jets. I mean, the Jets be getting Justin Fields. That'd be nice. That's not a bad player still. Not a bad Look, player. I mean, yeah, we'll it's see. Not Trevor Lawrence, but it's not a bad quarterback. Yeah, uh, we'll see. Got the Colts beating the Raiders 44-27. Vegas started 6-3. and three. Now they've lost three out of their last four. Jonathan Taylor, another impressive rookie running back. Ran for 150 yards on just 20 carries for two touchdowns. T.Y. Hilton has finally risen from the dead. Uh, Five catches, 86 yards, and two scores. He's been great. They have a good young wide receiver in Michael Pittman as well. And uh, 
Josh Jacobs was not 100% in this game, trolling his fantasy owners. I did not take the bait. Thank you, Josh Jacobs. I know you didn't do too much this week, but I have advanced to the fantasy semifinal. Because of- <laughs> Good luck with facing uh, Earhart this week. No. Earhart. Oh, no. Oh, yeah, Connor. Well, you should yeah. be able to beat Connor. Yeah. And then my brother plays against Kyle. So that should that should be interesting. And then four teams left. And then, uh, you know, we, we got, uh, yeah. You know, that's true. I mean, look, the Raiders are a Jekyll and Hyde type of football team. You don't know what Raiders team you're going to get. No, you don't. We get the Raiders team that beat the Saints back in week two. And you got the Raiders team that beat the Kansas City Chiefs. Those are pretty – those are two good wins for your resume, the Chiefs and the Saints. Oh, those are very good. Those are two out of the best three teams in the league this year. But then you're losing to the Jets. I mean – Almost losing to the Jets. Yeah. So – Speaking of the Saints, they just lost another game they should have won to Philadelphia uh, on Sunday. They lost 24-21. to The Jalen Hurts effect is in. Hurts threw for 167 yards and a touchdown, but also ran for over 100 yards. In addition to Miles Sanders, the Eagles just ran all over, all over the Saints defense. And a lot of people were saying that, you know, the Saints defense, they're the best in the NFC this year. I mean, they're really, really good. And yeah, Jalen Hurts, man. I don't know what it is. This backup quarterback trend for Philadelphia continues. It's not a good outlook when you look at the salary cap, but Jalen Hurts, I mean, it, he was able to work himself into a system where, you know, at Oklahoma and even at Bama, it was more of a run-first quarterback, and he could also throw the ball and be that type of threat. But if he if he has that tandem along with Miles Sanders for the rest of the way, that Philly is going to be scary, potentially uh, win the division. No, I agree. And we'll just breeze over these last few games. The Washington football team beat the 49ers 23-15 to to move into first place in the NFC East. Two defensive touchdowns for the first time since 1997. For the football team, they outgained the 49ers. Oh, no, the 49ers outgained them by over 150 yards, but Washington did force three turnovers. There is a concern with Alex Smith injuring his leg, had calf tightness on Sunday. The Chargers beat the Falcons 20-17. to Matt Ryan, three interceptions, and the Falcons were without Julio Jones. Austin Eckler did a good job in that game. Justin Herbert getting his first career road win. The Green Bay Packers survived the Detroit Lions and clinched the NFC North title for the second year in a row. Rodgers with three touchdowns and Devontae Adams with over 100 yards. Kenny Galladay missed the game. He's only played four games all season, and I'm still alive because of that. No Galladay, no DJ Moore, no George Kittle, no David Johnson, no problem. Still somehow gutted one out this week. Uh, yeah, but Kenny Galladay, uh, they, they've really missed him. And this game we're going to talk about for a minute, guys. Um, Pittsburgh at Buffalo, the Bills win 26-15. to Two straight losses for Pittsburgh. Buffalo gets their first win at home against the Steelers since 1999. Josh Allen, pair of touchdowns, now has the most touchdowns in a single season in Buffalo history. Stephon Diggs has proved to be a big addition, 130 receiving yards on 10 receptions and a score, and the Buffalo defense held James Conner to 18 rushing yards and forced two big Ben interceptions. What a performance by Buffalo and Pittsburgh. All of a sudden, they're reeling, and they're not looking good for that one seed. No, Pittsburgh, you know, we talked about it last week. Um, 
based on the fact that they contenders or pretenders. And I was vouching on the fact that I thought that they were pretenders. And, you know, we're seeing that they're playing legitimate teams right now that they are going to have to face eventually. And they're looking more and more as a team that could potentially be a first round exit based on the fact that they just don't look like a good team right now. A team that fell off, in my opinion, is the Bills. They played. No, no, that's still not fun. The Bills, the Bills have only furthermore proved how good they are as a team. They didn't play sloppy and they, it wasn't close. They won by 11 points. Did they play a close first half? Yes, they did. But the Steelers, they just come out absolutely flat. They have no run game whatsoever. The offensive line can't block for the run game. Ben Roethlisberger does not. He's kind of fallen a little bit. He's throwing silly interceptions. One was returned back for a touchdown right before halftime. Not a good look. And his receivers, including Eric Ebron as well, the tight end, they are dropping passes like there's no tomorrow. They lead the league and drop passes, which also is not helping their case for potentially sealing away that number one seed uh, for the AFC North. Hank and Dick. Bills are not falling off. No way Bills are a sleeper, if anything. Agreed. Agreed. I think the Bills are a wild card to make the AFC championship game. The reason I say that is because Allen was putting up over 250 to 300 yards each game. Yeah, but, I mean, to be fair, the the Steelers' defense is is not going to give up 300 yards to a quarterback. Um, But I think we knew heading into this game – a lot of points were not going to be scored. Buffalo still managed to put up 26 against the Pittsburgh defense. To me, at least, that's pretty darn impressive. Josh Allen plants his name in the MVP discussion, um, trying to flirt with that top five MVP candidate numbers. And um, One more game before we talk about the Giants. We're going to go a little over tonight. Uh, Baltimore and Cleveland. Baltimore wins 47-42. to 42. Uh, Justin Tucker drills a game-winning 55-yard field goal with two seconds left. A wild fourth quarter that went back and forth. Cleveland led, then Baltimore led, then Cleveland led again, and then they were tying. Lamar went to the locker room with cramps in the last couple of minutes, but came back out for a fourth down play, threw a touchdown pass to Hollywood Brown, finished with three total touchdowns. Two of them were rushing, and... A lot of people are saying this was the best game of the year so far. I would happen to agree. I loved what I saw the last couple of minutes. And you know, you know what? Baltimore proved that they're back on the map for the AFC. You, you cannot sleep on them. And the Browns, they're proving that they're a, a legit team that has a chance to win a playoff game this year. Uh, Nick Chubb had a touchdown. Kareem Hunt had two. Baker Mayfield is the second-best quarterback on the run in the NFL when he's throwing. He's been good throwing out of the pocket, over 340 passing yards, and then Baltimore had no turnovers. And I think Kevin Stefanski is probably a top-three candidate for coach of the year, him, Sean McDermott, and probably Mike Tomlin. I think those are your top three right now. You just look at the way that Stefanski took a Browns franchise that has not made the playoffs in two decades pretty much, and now all of a sudden they're nine and four. I mean, to me, goes to show you right there. Game of the year written all over it. And Kevin Stefanski is an outstanding head coach. Yeah, he is. Listen, that was going to be a worry um, for the
for them in the standing point, you know, especially as us as Giants fans, bringing over Pat Shermer as the offensive coordinator from the Vikings, bring him in. We saw that failed. And then Kevin Stefanski brought, being brought over to the Browns, and he's he has found a system that works in favor of Baker Mayfield and his strengths and his flaws where they run the ball a tremendous amount of times with Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb, which is the best tandem in all of football. And Baker Mayfield looked like an absolute stud last night. You know, people were saying, oh, maybe Tennessee was just a fluke in that game, and he just played out of his mind that game. That was another game. That was another game we talked about beforehand, how Cody Parkey, man, uh, another game in which he's blown due to his missed field goal opportunities. Baker Mayfield played absolutely unbelievable last night. They should take this loss stride in the loss of the loss, but this is this is this this is a legitimate loss, meaning that this is a legitimate team in which you just faced. Lamar Jackson is a former MVP, and you played like that. That's fantastic. Yeah, and I think the AFC North all of a sudden it's still a three-team race. I mean, it's looking like it's between Pittsburgh and Cleveland. I mean, I still think Pittsburgh has that the that division clearly, but yeah. the Browns and the Ravens are fighting with each other for a wild card spot right now. But the last game we're going to talk about, and we're going to spend about five minutes on this, is the Giants and the Cardinals. Now, Arizona won this game 26-7. to The Giants were riding high on a four-game winning streak. Arizona had lost three of their last four. Hassan Reddick with five sacks and three forced fumbles. That guy had a career day. Last year, Giants played the Cardinals. Cardinals had eight sacks. They play again this year. Guess what? Cardinals had eight sacks. Uh, Dennis Gardeck had two of them, and one of them came from an old friend in Marcus Golden, who forced a fumble on it and recovered it. Nearly returned it for a scorer, but thank goodness a player got there to bring him down. Kyler Murray was pretty good in this game, flirted around 250 in the passing department, had a touchdown, 47 yards on the ground. That was 20 more than he had last year against us. DeAndre Hopkins was a big factor, 136 yards through the air. And then, of course, Dan Arnold had that lollipop touchdown uh, where he just kind of threw the ball up for grabs, and then Arnold, the big 6'5 frame, comes down with it. But, guys, I think the storyline here is the offense and how poor it was. The defense was out on the field for way too long. And Jason Garrett probably called his worst game as a Giants offensive coordinator. This is the second week in a row the Giants were shut out in the first half, I want to say. And, yes, Daniel Jones did have three fumbles. He lost one of them. Clearly not 100%. 37 giveaways since being drafted, the most in that span. And uh, my my first question is, uh, I'll let one of you answer the Jones question, and then one of you take the Garrett question. Was Daniel Jones brought back too soon? And is Jason Garrett the primary reason of fault in this game? Because I read a stat this morning saying that, there, you know those NFL next-gen stats? So mm-hmm. I was looking at him and expected completion percentage on all of Daniel Jones's throws, 55.2%. That was last in the NFL, and that is a pure product of Jason Garrett and a poorly called game. Does that count for Ingram's drops half of the games? Oh, Yeah. Well, yeah. that's why it's so low, because Ingram drops too many balls. Uh, Russo, which question do you want to take, and I'll take I'll the other take, one. I'll take the second one. You roll with the first one. All right, so Daniel Jones. Uh, coach says he put him through the ringer. I do not believe him. If you put him through the ringer, he should have been able to run out of that pocket. He should have not stood there and take sacks. As a quarterback now within this league for two nearly years. two years, because I think today was Eli Manning's last day 
as a starting quarterback, as a giant, um, you're supposed to throw the ball away. You don't hug the ball and take the sack. We didn't cross the 50-yard line until me and Russo were talking about this to the beginning of – beginning no, midway, to middle of the, midway through the third quarter. Midway through the third quarter. So if the amount of times he threw the ball away might have uh, – Got a few flags in our favor. Might have brought us on the other side of the line of the 50, um, which brought back too soon, was also stayed in the game, uh, stayed in the game too long. They should have pulled him, to be honest, the third quarter. They should have put Colt McCoy in there and seen what he, he, had, he would have done, not waiting to nearly the fourth quarter to realize Jones is not ready for this game. Um, if Jones was completely healthy, us three would have saw a scrambling quarterback for first downs and more. He did not do that. He was a pass. He was a pocket passer, and that's my opinion on Jones. Okay, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with being a pocket passer, though. Uh, there's no, no, nothing there's wrong. Not. With, I would prefer him to be a pocket passer than a, 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 a scrambler, actually. But I, I see what you're saying. He wasn't able to take off as much. Yeah, like he like he wasn't even moving left to right. He was staying strictly, it looked like, within the drop back. Right. What he Don't did. get me wrong, he brought him back too soon, but we're not giving him a free pass on this game either just because he was playing hard. Oh, no. He still wasn't great. A lot of his reads weren't great, but I do think that majority of the fault should go to Jason Garrett and the play calling for those reasons that I just explained. But, Kyle, uh, thoughts, thoughts on <laughs> – thoughts on <laughs> – Waited two hours. Um, I can't – you have to blame some on the OC and Jason Garrett at this point in time. But another thing that what people have to realize is this, is that with Daniel Jones as the quarterback, and you could say whatever you want, you know, was he healthy, was he not? Again, Joe Judge is not the type of guy that I think is going to BS the media. I think he's going to tell the truth at all times. And you can't even make the argument in this case scenario where you could say, you know, you put – Daniel Jones in the game because he gives you the best odds to win. When the week prior, Colt McCoy, the backup, got the best win that the New York Giants have had over the course of the last three years. You can't even say that. You can't even make that argument because you won with your backup against one of the most legit teams in the NFL. So when it comes back to Jason Garrett and the OC, this is how I look at it. If Daniel Jones is hurt, let's say, right, he can't run the football. This only more further proves the point that when you look at the let's say, game plan that Jason Garrett has assembled these last, I don't know, 12, 13 games, 12 games, because that's how many Daniel Jones has played. You want to know why the game plan is so bland, why it's so conservative? Is because of the quarterback that they're playing with. They can't – if Daniel Jones is is making these ridiculous throws, they're not going to allow him to make these ridiculous throws. Why? Because he's going to turn the ball over. They have to play conservative football consistent of checkdowns because of the fact that they know he will turn it over. And there's not even an argument against it because look what's happened. Look what has happened. He turns the football over. They have to play this way. They have to play this way. And you want to talk about the sacks? Yes, eight sacks, absolutely atrocious by the offensive line. There's no exception. Seven of those only happened against Daniel Jones, obviously the one at the end in garbage time, Colt McCoy. Four of those sacks that Daniel Jones took, and James just alluded to it, Daniel Jones and at least three of those had plenty of time to throw the ball. Plenty of time, even if you were throwing it away. He just has to be more intelligent with the football, and that's we're seeing more and more problems come from him starting that he's just not getting it. He's just not getting it. You know, I hold on to the football. I'm not going to give it away. 
yeah, but you just lost 10 yards and, and we're, we're here on a third and 20 and now we have to give the ball back to them. You have to be more intelligent with the football and I'm just not seeing that. Can you blame Jason Garrett for the blame pan? A little bit, but understand that his game plan surrounds him what Daniel Jones can do. And knowing that his hamstring can hurt, is hurt, what legitimately is Daniel Jones really, really good at as a quarterback, not a running quarterback, but as a quarterback throwing the ball, that you could have a lot of confidence in your game plan? Because he throws interceptions, he can't connect in the end zone, he's not good in the red zone, and he's a 62 completion percentage. So what can you do in that stance with Daniel Jones as the OC in that game, knowing that he cannot run the football? What can you do? So I agree with the majority of what you said until you brought up the word conservative because on third and short, they were throwing bombs down the field to Sterling Shepard, and Jones was just messing them up. Uh, they were inaccurate throws, and the receivers are getting pretty good separation. The wide receivers on this roster are not the problem. Slayton, Tate, and Shepard are not the problem. It's a combination of Jones's decision-making and vision and reading a defense properly it's a product of Jason Garrett as well. And the reason why is Daniel Jones played better in Pat Shermer's offense than Jason Garrett's offense so far. And I'm astonished that we're saying this, but look at how Daniel Jones played. I'm going to be honest with you. And we heard this from Lance Meadow and we heard this from the entertainer when he came on big blue Avenue, Daniel Jones played 12 games last year. He's yet to play a full season in this league. So you have to continue getting the guy reps, but eventually there comes a point in time you just have to stop making excuses for the guy. He has to deliver. He has to deliver against this Cardinals defense. Now, don't get me wrong. Marcus Golden knew what the Giants – I mean, the Cardinals ran a 4-4 in the box. Nick Gates, the center, brought up, we've never seen this. We, we weren't preparing for this game plan all week. The Giants got outcoached. And I'm going to be honest with you, if Daniel Jones wasn't 100%, you have to put some of the blame on Joe Judge as well. And I, look, don't get me wrong. I love Joe Judge. I trust him. He's going to make the right decisions for this organization, in my opinion. But, of course, your player is going to want to play. What do you expect him to, to do? He's going to do everything he can to be ready on Sunday. He wasn't ready, even if he was ready. I don't think we see as many mistakes as he, he made in that game. But you're right, Kyle. The fumbles, they have to stop. They have to stop. He went two to three games without a turnover. That's great. But, I mean, when – you guys brought it up earlier. Four plays in Arizona territory. Uh, it's just a shame. Arizona held the ball for 37 minutes. They outrushed us. I mean, our running game wasn't bad. We were just playing from behind majority yeah. of the game. And I, I kind of want each of us to make a final point on the Giants before we move on. But uh, I feel like Jason Garrett should be on the hot seat. I think you have to look at potential play callers because if Daniel Jones is your quarterback heading into 2021 – which is looking more and more likely at this point. Uh, he, it, it's it's weird because you either got to stick with Garrett and hope Jones learns the playbook better, or you're going to have a third different play caller for Daniel Jones in three years, and that's very concerning. And now we've lost track of the division because of it. We we've lost track of the division. We lost to a team we should we shouldn't have lost to. I, I don't care. That the defense, I mean, don't get me wrong. We gave up 26 points, but the defense didn't give up all those points. I mean, yeah, they gave up some of them, but the offense attributed to a lot of those points that we gave up. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. And I feel like in week 14, we can all finally agree on this football team and what the issues are. 
It's Garrett. It's Jones. The special teams was atrocious. They didn't help out. Yeah, me and James were talking about that a little bit, and we kind of came to the conclusion that because Joe Judge has basically taken over every single part of the team at this point, you know, firing Mark Colombo, that he hasn't had time to necessarily focus on what, you know, he did. Because in the beginning of the season, they were so good, and these last three weeks have been terrible. You know, Bengals let up for a touchdown, and then this week they were terrible. Um, my final point would be this, is that, again, I don't think Daniel Jones is the guy. I, I just don't think he's the guy. He's started now 12 weeks for this Giants football team. And he's had seven games without throwing a touchdown. I don't care what kind of play calling your your OC is doing. Seven games without throwing a touchdown. It's just it's just unacceptable. It's just unacceptable. You have eight touchdowns. I looked this up. This is absolutely mind blowing to me. Dak Prescott has not played a game since week five, and he has more passing touchdowns than Daniel Jones. Yeah. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. And again, one last final thing. Um, about Joe Judge. Joe Judge is a smart guy. He knows the division's on the line. If he really thought Daniel Jones couldn't handle it, he's not giving up the division lead. I, he's not doing that, especially knowing that they have to win this game because Baltimore and Cleveland are only tougher. If he didn't think he was healthy, he wasn't going to start him. So, question. you think there's a chance Colt McCoy starts Sunday? No, I don't think there is. I think Daniel Jones will wind up starting. And I'm not saying that's the right choice, but I'm saying that that's if you're going to start him and say that he was not 100% against Arizona, well, now he's had another week to recover. You're not going to tell me that he's not going to start against Cleveland. And, guys, too, when, when, when I defend Jones, because I do do that often, I'm not saying he's the future of this team like Eli Manning was. I'm saying you know he deserves to be our quarterback next year still. I think there's other holes on this team we need to fulfill before. We need to give Jones a third year and a full season. This is his first full season thinking about it. But, uh, James, I, I do want to get to your final point before we talk about the MVP discussion. Uh, final point is Joe Judge needs to get his hands out of everything. Not that I'm saying it's a bad thing, but when you get into your hands with everything, people see it all the time. One yeah. thing always slips. So if he just removes himself just a little bit from either the offense or defense or both and more focus on the special teams, perfect. Um, if we have to fire Garrett, because of Joe, uh, because of Daniel Jones, um, that's the third offensive coordinator he's had. There's a problem, and um, I think if quick thing for Sunday, if Jones has a bad of a start as he did did in this past week, I would like to see Colt McCoy a lot earlier. Yeah, that's true. Because right. this defense cannot get that gas again, and we oh, saw yeah. it last night's game. I mean, guys- we saw it. Go ahead. We saw how the Ravens and Browns went blow to blow. Our defense would not be able to handle that. Two weeks in a row getting gassed within the first half. Right. I mean, you guys bring a fair point. Look, I mean, it's fair It's fair to, to critique it. I mean, I, I, I do think Jones is our, our franchise quarterback. I just think it's going to take some time. But um, you guys bring – he deserves the criticism right now. He deserves to be on the hot seat as our quarterback. He has to play better, and he knows that. He, he knows that. He's a smart guy. I mean, he, it's going to develop over time, but we will see. We will see if he is here for the long term and see if he can improve in these final three regular season games. But uh, let's move on to our MVP discussion, Aaron Rodgers versus Patrick Mahomes. Now, before this week, everybody's saying don't even question Patrick Mahomes as the MVP. And now look, um, 
at 37 years old, what Aaron Rodgers has done this year is pretty darn impressive, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my opinion, we brought this up before we went on air tonight. The Packers are a five-win team without Aaron Rodgers. Their defense is bad. I can name two good players on that Packers offense outside of Rodgers. It's Jones and it's Adams. He, mm-hmm. Rodgers, he didn't have Lazard majority of the season. He's played like four or five games. Adams missed some time. Valdez Scantling was his number one guy for weeks. He was throwing a guys named Valdez Scantling and Rob Tanyan. Yeah. I, Rogers, as far as most valuable player goes, Aaron Rodgers is the most valuable player in this league. And if Mahomes were to go down, I, I still think the Chiefs would make the playoffs. They have Travis Kelsey. You have Tyreek Hill. You have Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. You have a solid offensive line. And, you know, you have stars on defense like Chris Jones and Tyran Matthew that the Packers don't have. They don't have those stars. Yeah. They lost their stars. They they, they lost Blake Martinez last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, as of right now, as far as the MVP goes, I think it has to go to Aaron Rodgers. And, guys, Rodgers has thrown less interceptions, and he's the only player to ever throw for 40-plus touchdowns and se- seven or less interceptions in a season, and he's done it twice. I, I think Rodgers is the front runner right now, but for the people that are coming out and saying that Mahomes doesn't have a chance, uh, please take a, a chill pill because Patrick Mahomes is pretty good in himself. Look, he's a young guy. I mean, you shouldn't be taking a 23-yard sack. That's not what an MVP player does. It's not what a good starting quarterback does, but everybody has their own mistakes, and I think you got to give him a freebie on that. Yeah, I think you give him a freebie on that, and, you know, he had a bad game um... – it's not even a bad game for Patrick Mahomes. Still had two two touchdowns, three hundred plus yards, three picks. Yeah, but everybody forgets about it because they put a win in the win column. But I think that game, I think that game edges Aaron Rodgers above him a little bit. I think that Mahomes can regain the lead if they play really really well against the Saints because you know the Saints are going to be looking to fight back after somewhat of an embarrassing loss against Jalen Hurts and this Philadelphia Eagles team. They're going to be looking to fight back. I don't know the status on Drew Brees if he's going to play or not. If it's going to be a run back of Taysom Hill. But that's how he could potentially gain back traction in that MVP voting. But either one of these guys, you can't – they both put up such tremendous seasons. You can't knock either one. Tom, I would happen to agree that it would be Aaron Rodgers at this point in time. But it's it's so close. It's so close. For, for – I look at it this way. Aaron Rodgers is in his late 30s. Pat Mahomes is in his like – what's he, 23, 22? Younger than me. Um, I'm making a lot more money. Okay, never mind. Um, 25. Oh, he's 25? All right, so he's the same age as me. We have to look at it this way. I look at it this way. Okay, Aaron Rodgers might get more of the older vote, people that's seen him more in the league. Pat Mahomes might get the younger vote. He might get the votes that the people want to see like him running out of the pocket, thrown with one eye closed and like turned the complete opposite way. Aaron Rodgers really doesn't do that. Aaron Rodgers will run out of the pocket, but he won't have his body turned half around and his eyes half open, at least for the most part. I never seen him run a play like that. I would lean more to Aaron Rodgers because he has that experience. He's worked with the team that Tom says probably only has five wins without him. He's also, he, his, Backup quarterback was drafted to possibly replace him this season. He's shown that he is not going to be replaced this season. He's had, in my mind, a chip on his shoulder saying, all right, good, you drafted 
possibly the future after me, but I'm still here. I'm winning this. That's why I think he gets the MVP vote. Yeah, I mean, I think Rodgers has at least five good years left in him because, remember, he didn't start his first few years in the league, so he doesn't have as many miles as some of these other quarterbacks do. That's what you get when you sit behind Brett Favre. And John brings up the point. So is Russell Wilson completely out of it? Yeah, he is. He yeah. he, he played himself out of it. He played himself out. I think so. These last six, seven weeks, they've been like three and four, and it's been a main con- – uh, listen, the defense, their defense is absolutely atrocious, but – you know, loss to the Giants, that doesn't look good. You lose to the Rams, division rival, that doesn't look good. You get crapped on by Buffalo, that doesn't look good. And again, it's basically on behalf of him turning the football over a bunch of times. I know in the Buffalo game, he turned it over four times. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, last thing we're going to make talk about tonight is our game of the week. And while we do that, I'm going to share my screen. We're each going to pick a game uh, and then – we will wrap this up. So here's the playoff picture, folks, and we'll have that up as we go over this. But, uh, James, I, I want to start with you and ask ask you who your game of the week is for week 15 and why. My game of the week, so just bear with me, the, it's a little small. I see the big – the home team. I don't see the – it's not your fault. No, no, no. Um, the, the playoff picture. These aren't the games. Oh, playoff picture. Well, the game of – my game of the week. Sorry about that. Uh, my game of the week. Let's see. You know, we got some pretty good games on this week. I would have to say, um, where, where was the game of the week I had? Arizona and Philly. Yeah. You it's got good. hurt. Yeah, uh, you, you, you just got two good quarterbacks, a backup quarterback in for wins. That's probably your starting quarterback. If he wins out, he wins the job. Or if he wins most of the games, he wins the job in Philly. And then Arizona's, the way they just put – I mean, you got two of probably the greatest wide receivers on one team at the moment. I'm going with Arizona-Philly. That's going to be an, an exciting game in my opinion. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, My game of the week is going to be Chicago versus Minnesota. It's two six and 6-7 teams uh, fighting for a wild card spot right now. Obviously, Green Bay has run away with that division. But this is going to be a real game. You know, is Mitchell Trubisky the answer? Is Kirk Cousins exactly. a legitimate quarterback when, you know, playoffs are on the line? And, you know, we'll see that in this game. Hopefully we'll see that in this game. But that's my game of the week. You can see the Bears and the Vikings are currently the 8-9 and nine seed down here on the bubble, both 6-7. and seven. Big NFC North matchup. The Vikings did win their first meeting. And then, as James mentioned, you see the Cardinals here. They currently hold a 7 seed. And then Philadelphia is 13 below the Giants. So my game of the week, and I'm surprised this hasn't been picked yet, it's the Chiefs at the Saints. 12-1 uh, and one, Kansas City traveling to the Superdome to play the 10-3 and three Saints. Uh, I do think the Chiefs have an edge here, especially with Drew Brees still being out for the Week 15 game. Uh, look, as good as Michael Thomas and Alvin Kamara are, uh, you know, the, the Chiefs can match that offensively with Kelsey Hill and Clyde Edwards, Hilaire. And then the Saints defense is going to have to do a better job than they did against Philadelphia in order to win this game. Cameron Jordan, Trey Hendrickson, Marcus Davenport, those guys got to show up. And they didn't last week against Philadelphia. So that's my game of the week. Um, yeah, I mean, 
the Saints right now are the two seed in the NFC and the Chiefs are the one seed in the AFC. And the reason why that's my game of the week as well, only one team in each conference gets a bye this year. So you're playing for a lot more as a one seed than you would in previous years. I agree. I, I saw that game. I just wanted to be a little bit different. I figured that was an easy pull. Yeah. No, it was an easy pull. And if neither of you took it, I was going Giants-Browns because that I, I think that's going to be a lot closer than what people are saying. But Hopefully. Uh, Seattle at Washington, and I'm sure Kyle would put this in Washington's favor. If Alex Smith was playing, I would, but not knowing the status yet, if Dwayne Haskins plays, again, just completely different ball game. I don't know if Antonio Gibson's playing, completely different ball game. Um, yeah. Well, we will see. Um, on that note, We'd like to thank all our viewers for watching us tonight here on Review and Preview. A reminder that the North Pole will be live tomorrow night at 8 p.m., followed by Big Blue Avenue Thursday at 7. Hank and myself will be hosting that show. And next week, we will be back same time, Tuesday, 7 to 9. We will be catching up with our buddy Fonz DeFalco, who joins the show to talk Giants, Ravens, and other topics around the NFL. So looking forward to having him back for a Christmas-themed show. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel at Review and Preview Sports. Kyle and James, thank you both very much for joining me here tonight. Really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, guys, this was a great show. We we went over, but always good content. Chris Milholland was great, wasn't he? Yeah, no, that was one of our best guests I think that we've had. That was, that was a good one. Yeah, no, for sure, 100%. But, James and Kyle, on behalf of both of you, I'm Tom Scavetta saying so long, everybody. You've been watching Review and Preview here on Facebook Live. Good night, everybody.